Hello. Hello, Charles McGarry. Welcome to the Garden Pepper Show. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Did I pronounce your name correctly, McGarry? Charles McGarry. Yeah, you got it. Just the uh, Mick and the and the regular Gary that you would call somebody. Yeah. In fact, I get a lot of people who call me Gary by mistake. Oh, they do. Yeah, it seems to be a common mistake. That's funny. Yeah, I, I would. Well, if you have a name that last name is a surname, a lot of times people will do that. You know. So what can I do to help you today with your show, Garland? Well, I would like to, first off, uh, introduce you. This is uh, my good friend, Charles McGarry. And uh, we've only met a couple times. We're both Dandy Warhol's fans. And, uh, and I was going to say him. that. that we, we, met, we met all one weekend. I think we might have met two or three times, but it was all in the same weekend. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, when Federale opened up for the Dandy's um, right. Chris, Christmas show. The Christmas show. I came to your town, Portland. You did. I've not been down to your town. You're in Houston? Dallas. Dallas. Well, that's a big town. It's that's a big, very big, big city. Yeah, and I live right in the heart of downtown. Oh, you do? Like in a, yeah. like in a apartment? Yeah. In a high-rise apartment, just looking out all over Texas. Well, I, you know, my, my view is mostly filled with other high-rises and office towers, but, uh, but you know, it, it's actually a, you know, a very beautiful sight at night. You know, it's all, they're all LED lit up and stuff. And, so, uh, so yes, I, I have an urban lifestyle these days. And, and has it always been the case? or No, actually, it's been progressively more urban my entire life. I grew up in the middle of the sticks. <laughs> you know, I had, uh, I had 10 miles of virgin forest out my backyard uh, when I was growing up. Yeah. Wow. That's, see, that's where I am now. I, I like the rural. Yeah, I, you know, and I... I uh, I, I appreciate it, and you know, I, I learned a lot of outdoor skills. But uh, you know, I, I I I was a twelve month a year camper, even winters, so all four seasons. Uh, wow. But uh, but I you know I found myself actually bored by it. You know, and I was progressively wanting more stimulation in my life, and so I went from the the sticks to uh, a small city to a bigger city to a even bigger city. <laughs> so what was the city the the first one? Uh I I moved, I, I grew up in upstate New York in mm -hmm. the Hudson River Valley near uh, you know just south of the Catskill Mountains. Yeah. Got, got Woodstock, you know, Woodstock. <laughs> yeah. And uh uh my first city was where I went to college, Binghamton, New York, which is uh, an old uh, industrial town in upstate New York. And uh, went from there to Austin, Texas, and uh, managed to catch the uh, the '70s cosmic cowboy scene. And, oh yeah, and uh, and then from there to Dallas. Cosmic cowboy scene. Yeah, I've been, yeah. I've been blessed. I mean, I mean, you know, one thing that we're going to end up talking about a lot is music, and uh, it's been a passion yeah. in my life from from really my earliest childhood, and uh, and I've been fortunate enough to to really be heavily involved in three major what I call music scenes, you know, that generated a lot of great music, great bands and a lot of press coverage and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, my role in each of the three of them was was different, uh, but it's been great. It's been great. I, I feel my I feel very fortunate. So you, you come up in Texas when this cosmic. Well, you know, the, I've the, never even heard of you never story. heard of the cosmic. Scene. Have you ever heard of the uh, Armadillo World? It's electric. 
Well, it, woogie, woogie. Well, no, you know. it's, it's it was uh, Willie Nelson and uh, Jerry Jeff Walker and and uh, oh yeah and, and uh, you know the TV show uh, Austin City Limits. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let me tell you something interesting about all of that. Um, you know, in the in the seventies in New York, when I was growing up there, I mean, it was a cool place, but it was economically very depressed. You know, we had the, the oil shock and, yeah. uh, and a major recession, and it hit the North much harder than it hit the South. Yeah. And so there was a mass migration from the North to South. And uh, among the people who migrated were three people from my neck of the woods in upstate New York who each migrated to Austin just a couple of years apart from each other. And the first of those was Jerry Jeff Walker. And, uh, okay. and he was an upstate New York guy who, uh, who took off to find his uh, fame and fortune in Austin. And, uh, and, a, uh, and a few years after that, uh, a fellow by the name of Terry Lacona, who lived less than 20 miles from me up in upstate mm-hmm. New York, he, he moved down in the mid-70s and started Austin City Limits. Really? Yeah, and then I followed him uh, by about three or four years. And uh, I, I, I went to Austin to go to law school. It's interesting how these little artistic nuggets become like these. Well, yeah, these, these Texas things. icons are all transplanted New Yorkers. <laughs> That's hilarious. So you went to law school there in Austin? In Austin, right, at the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. And they, they gave me a full-ride scholarship. They totally bribed me to come down. Really? Yeah. So you were a pretty sharp kid your whole life. Uh, yeah, I, I was at the top of my class in college. I, I, I blossomed in college after having kind of a rough childhood. Good, good. So it, it's the curiosity that drove you. Well, it, 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 well, you know, the thing is, uh, and I guess the first of the anecdotes, I, I warned you, I'm an Irishman at heart, so I, I, te- I, I, I convey my story in little stories. And, Bring it on. And uh, the first little story is how I decided to become a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, uh, just a little background about myself, uh, when I say I had a kind of a hardship as a childhood, but I, I am the first person on either side of my, of my family ever in history to graduate high school. And uh, I came from a long line of, uh, of uh, you know, blue collar workers. And, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, n- nobody in my family had graduated high school, much less gone to college. And mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, found myself with uh, these twin passions growing up of, uh, politics and music and and, yeah. and they both had separate origins but they they you know they kind of they've both been with me pretty much my whole life you know because mm-hmm. uh, uh the the music started uh, with my godfather actually who was uh, a big band leader in the 40s and 50s oh wow like the big bands like, <laughs> like uh, the big bands his tommy dorsey his name that, yeah. was hugo winterhalter you can look him up. He he uh, he played this really schmaltzy kind of uh, his his biggest selling albums were like Hawaiian tunes and stuff. <laughs> oh, oh really? Yeah. But but he became the NBC Television Orchestra. Really? Yeah. So so he and back in the early days of television, you know, they had live orchestras that that did the music to to various shows, and he was the band leader. 
And this is your godfather. My godfather, because he's a longtime family friend. And uh, Winter Holler? Winter Halter. Halter. Yeah, Hugo Winter Halter. And uh, and anyway, he, he he died very early in my life, but he left me this humongous box of records. Oh, and, nice. and 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 they were all demo 45s that he had just collected at NBC. And uh, and this uh, this would have been six. So like every band that came through there or sent well, NBC I stuff, mean, he, was, he got a it would got be a copy. it would be not only like new bands you know trying to get you know promotion, but it would be like label demos too. So mm-hmm. so there were well known artists, there were up and coming artists, there was everything. Yeah. And uh, and unfortunately, I think I only still have about 50 of them that have survived to, mm-hmm. to, to adulthood. But the original box he gave me had to have a thousand of them in there. It's tough to move records around all over. Yeah, the 45s. And none of none of them had covers. They were all just loose in a box. But mm-hmm. but uh, among the ones that I saved um, were uh, an early uh, 45 of the Beatles on an indie Really, and uh, I've got like five copies of "She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah" on the Swan record label. On Swan, Swan, the Swan record label. What? <laughs> yeah, you never heard How of it, did right? That happened. Well, I have heard of Swan Records. I forget what I'd, I've seen it on. Um, well, I don't know much about it either, but I got five copies of the same forty-five. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's cool. And uh, and this was before the Ed Sullivan show, so I became a Beatle maniac even before they were on Ed Sullivan. Really? Yeah. So so yes, I was I was clued in very early. But uh, anyway, get, diverting from my story, I had this I had this uh, you know these twin passions, music and politics, and the politics probably came out of. Uh, just the era, you know, it's the sixties yeah. and, so, and, and living in New York and especially up, up, up in, you know, the upstate New York area, there were a lot of, a lot of those people who were directly involved in those protests and stuff were friends and neighbors of mine. So, yeah. so, so that caught on pretty early. And, uh, so when I was in high school, uh, I, I started an underground newspaper. You remember those? yeah oh yeah well, i had a friend who owned a print shop well his parents owned a print shop and uh and they had offset printers and uh you know we, we had nothing to do in the afternoons and uh so i i learned self-taught typesetting and learned how, wow. learned how to do it's not easy print, print shop and uh and of course you know being being radicalized at an early age, you know, what am I going to do with free access to a print shop? I'm I'm going to try and turn it into a money making scheme, and so I decided to print up you know one of these alternative newspapers and and sell it at high school. Uh huh. And uh, and you know we <laughs> we we took very uh, risky uh, advertising. You know, we had, we had people selling drugs in our in our classifieds and. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, and, oh my gosh. but but we also but we also had like the 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 latest info on when concert tickets were going on sale and stuff, which which you know back then was was a hard thing to know you know because there was no internet, and uh, yeah. and you know to to know when something was going to go on sale at Ticketmaster was uh, or whatever they called it back then I think it had a slightly different name then but uh, yeah but. Uh, 
you know, that was that was cool inside information to have. So, you know, so we were we were moderately successful in selling our newspaper for five cents. Sure, the up the upstate Village Voice, huh? Yeah, and and the thing is, I was a huge fan of the Village Voice. I think that was my inspiration. Um, and because uh, yeah, because I was uh, I lived just past the last train stop to New York, so I could get to the train, get to New York, and uh, you know, always always picked up the Voice when I was there. So it yeah. was a big inspiration for me. Uh, so anyway, I had this underground newspaper and uh, my high school didn't take kindly to it. <laughs> I, I, and I'm, I'm being modest here. They, 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 they fucking hated it. <laughs> so, yeah, so, 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 I so guess. You know, they threatened to suspend me and kick me out of school for distributing this newspaper. And, mm-hmm. uh, it just so happened that I, I had had a, a, a legitimate newspaper route as a paper boy in the morning. And what, oh, I did a paper yeah, route. Yeah, I did a newspaper route. Kids don't get to do paper routes anymore. No. But, uh, but one of my customers was a lawyer. And, uh, and he was the only lawyer I'd ever met in my life. And, uh, and so I, I made a point of stopping and, and telling him about this. And... Uh, he goes, oh, well, they can't do that. That's, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And uh, he, uh, he said he, he would uh, do a little checking for me. And it turned out that there was a federal court case that had recently come out from a neighboring district. It was like, like one district over from where we were, which dealt with exactly the same thing. It was a high school underground <laughs> newspaper. In Danbury, in oh, really? Danbury, Connecticut, and the federal court ruled in the paper's favor, said that the school couldn't interfere. So, so, so this lawyer volunteered to uh, send a cease and desist letter to uh, to, the, to my high school and immediately shut them down, <laughs> just with, with one wow. letter. And he was actually a customer. Yeah, he was. A, he, was, he, was a, he was a newspaper customer. customer. Yeah, yeah, he was doing me a favor. And, uh, but, nice. but, you know, it worked instantly and, uh, and not only did the school, you know, not stop bothering me, but after that, they, they offered to buy my newspaper to turn it into the legitimate school newspaper. <laughs> really? Yeah. So yeah, just co-opt them. Well, well, that's it. That's it. I guess I should be half ashamed to say I sold out. But 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 they were talking like more money than I could make in you know in a year back then. <laughs> so you, you sold your paper to the school after they threatened to kick right. you out. This is hilarious. Right. So 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 anyway, I, I'm feeling pretty pretty damn powerful at this point. <laughs> and, yeah. and and even and even after I the paper went legitimate. Of course, you know all the questionable ads had to go. But uh, and you know and I had to promise not to use you know. You know, obscene language and that, but but they didn't give me any limit on what I could cover, and uh, and one of my first stories as a legitimate paper was uncovering a crooked land scheme by the school board. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, they were they were planning on uh, selling school property to a developer and not telling anybody. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh my so, god. So, so anyway, um, I'm. You know, that, that, and this happened, I guess, when I was a junior. And so when I'm uh, uh, just beginning of my senior year and, and uh, in the homeroom class before the day starts, 
I'm just kind of standing and staring out the window and, uh, and just thinking to myself. And I, and I just had this sudden epiphany that, gee, if, if I were a lawyer, nobody would ever be able to fuck with me again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, you do battle with other lawyers. Yeah, right, right. Well, but it was. It was a shining epiphany moment, and it changed my whole life because I did. I I decided I was going to be a lawyer. I love it. And, uh, you know, a a whole separate story about – you know, how I actually ended up going to college because my parents, obviously they weren't around to help me, but, uh, but, you know, I had some, uh, I had some help from outside the family and encouragement and uh, ended up going to college. And like I said, Blossom did very well and ended up with a full scholarship law school. Boom. Here I am still doing, still doing wow. politics and music. My two passions. That's yeah. That's, that's, that's some fun growing up stories. Thank you. That was, that was excellent. Um, so, you practice law, and you have a radio station. I, uh, I've been involved in the radio business since, I guess, 1990 or so, somewhere right around there, late 80s, early 90s. Um, I've, 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 well, that's been a hard time well, to you know, own a I'm going to tell you, I, I, I embody a, a complete history and cycle of the radio business because uh, – uh, I uh, I was very fortunate, really. My first radio station, um, I you know, my my law practice and my entertainment law practice puts me in touch with a lot of people in the business, including radio, including you know record labels and and you know pretty much the the whole industry. And so I I knew people sure. in the radio business and uh, and. Uh, one of them mentioned to me that uh, that that uh, they they were looking, you know, one of these guys who was like a senior engineer with one of the big powerhouse pop stations mentioned to me that he was looking to get out from the big corporate thing and uh, and 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 do a passion project, and he wanted to start a jazz radio station, <laughs> which is you know not a not it's definitely a niche, <laughs> you know. You know it's a niche. You got to have a big market yeah. to to throw yeah. that in. And uh, and and not only jazz, but old jazz. He was thinking big band and and, and bebop. Yeah, tra- 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 traditional, traditional jazz, jazz yeah. bebop. And uh, yeah, big spider and uh, and, and older. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. so anyway, he was he was looking to uh, to buy a station and start his own station. He was looking for investors and. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I do this, this kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, 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 in the course of my law practice, I've probably helped start over 100 record labels. And uh, wow. so, you know, so, so as far as raising money, starting a new business, you know, I, I, was, I was well suited. Plus I, had, plus, I had some cash. I said, I tell you what, you know, uh, how about, uh, you know, I'll be an investor, but I'll also be the lawyer for the for the deal. And uh, so he, he he invited me in, and uh, we had a, a, a small group of people. And uh, what we did, it was fairly fairly ingenious. Um, we bought a uh, AM radio station 
that was up in the panhandle of Texas doing farm reports. And okay. uh, the plan was, and, and we executed the plan, you know, to, to a T, but uh, we, the plan was to buy this rural radio station for a very modest price and petition the FCC to move it to Collin County, Texas, which is the county just north of Dallas. It's because, and the, and the pitch to the FCC was that Collin County was the most highly populated county in the entire country that did not have a radio station. So it was an, so it was an uh-huh. unserved market that had grown exponentially uh, uh, you know, right. throughout, the, uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. And this, like I said, was late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, and the FCC granted our petition. So we were allowed to take this rural radio station signal and move, and move it to one of the most <laughs> populated suburbs uh, in the country. And uh, and changed wow. the format and and we started this you know this station and uh, and you know still well AM? yeah yeah that, that's the thing I mean when you buy a station you're buying the bandwidth yeah yeah the, the license for that right. bandwidth so we're buying that bandwidth and that signal and and moving it and of course you know the, the big concern is that there not be any conflicting signals on that bandwidth and there weren't. Um, you know, yeah, we're talking. It was a 10:80 a.m., and uh, which is a strong signal. You know, it's not the far end of the dial, but but yeah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was just a perfect fit. You know, and uh, and so we pulled that off. You know, built a new tower, a new studio, and uh, had this radio station going. And, what was uh, your format? Big band and, and traditional jazz. And so you stayed with that format. Well, no, well, and we it created the format. Remember, it was a farm report station when we bought it. Yeah, oh, it was true. it was talk true. radio yeah. in in the farm belt, and uh, we changed it to a music station. And uh, nice. and you know, it's, like I said, it, it's it's a niche market. You know, our, our audience was old, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. but you know, old people still had the habit of listening to AM radio. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's uh, true. so so that's so true. it worked. They don't. They don't... And uh, and so we were very fortunate in a lot of a lot of ways uh, the, the format worked, the, uh, the signal worked and we were able to move it from a rural area to a, you know, to a suburban area. And then uh, and then a remarkable thing happened, even on top of all that. In 1996, the uh, the federal government passed the Telecommunications Deregulation Act. And uh, yes. what that did was uh, eliminate the limits on the number of radio and TV stations that a company could own. You know, pre- previously the big yes. corporations were limited to like one TV and one radio station in each market. And, uh, right. and this allowed them to start buying up as much as they wanted to, which created a, you know, a feeding frenzy on small independent radio stations. And, yes. uh, and you know this, and this just just tore them up. I mean, it it really just ransacked. I remember when I was a kid, a town of two thousand, you know, would have a radio yeah. station. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, well, and, well, listen, this is this is this is. Uh, I like I said, I could tell you the whole history of radio just through what I did, uh, because uh, you know this 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 uh, small one time rural. Uh, you know, 
station suddenly became the object of a bidding war between mega corporations. And uh, right. we, we ultimately sold out to Disney. And uh, yeah, for, yeah, for you know, approximately eight or nine times what we had into it. Yeah, so yeah. Nice. Yeah, oh, that's, that, a that's a good day. That's a good day. So, so, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. I guess if there's, if there was one pattern too, I, I, I have a price. I can be bought out on almost anything. <laughs> well, so, sure, so, so we, sure, we did you know. sell the station. Uh, now, now, mind you, the, the mm-hmm. guys who had, you know, who had initially brought me into this deal, they, they, you know, they worked the station. I was the, the lawyer who would do things occasionally, but they were, day-to-day manager, station manager. It was their life. It was their life. So, so, you know, they were happy to to sell out, but at the same time, you know, they, they still had a desire to get back in. So, so the question is, of course, can lightning strike twice? And, and the the answer actually is, is no, not really, because, you know, once, once the price of stations is, is zoomed, it's zoomed everywhere. All right. So, so now, so it's, uh, now here's the thing. Follow, follow the industry. There's mass consolidation. Fewer and fewer companies own more and more stations. There's less local differentiation between the stations. Now, small town station in Missouri plays exactly the same playlist as a big city station in in Los Angeles. It's It's all all centrally centrally programmed. You don't even have local DJs at a lot of them. Yeah. It's all syndicated. And and you know and and at the same time, radio is a has a shrinking share of the entertainment market because suddenly there's there's digital everything. I mean you know there's 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 iPods, yeah. there's video games, there's all these competing uh, businesses for the uh, the entertainment music dollar and entertainment dollar that that didn't exist before. So the entire radio industry is shrinking. At the same time that the prices of these stations had been vastly escalated. And so these corporations had taken on all this debt to buy these stations and suddenly their market was shrinking. And so it became a huge fiasco for, you know, over the, and I'm saying over the long term, because this is the late nineties when it boomed and, 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 you know, that process of consolidation probably took 10 years. And so we're, you know, into the late aughts. Uh, and, and, and all of a sudden the radio companies, you know, the, these big corporations that own these stations are, are losing money hand over fist. Yeah. They're starting to well, let yes, stuff go. That's exactly what happened is they, they, they started consolidating stations and, uh, and, you know, picking winners and losers and, you know, to the, uh, to these big corporations, the losers were anything outside of the major cities. So, and all the, so the rural stations, they had bid those up too, but, but suddenly they were big money losers. And, uh, and so there was a fire sale. (laughs) There was a nice, what was that big company that kind of took over? There was one that was just well major player. Uh, well, we 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 ended up buying two more stations from Cumulus, which was one of the big boys, uh, and, uh, was one and of them, yeah. Clear Clear Channel, Clear Channel, clear was, Channel. was probably I think number one, 
and they were they they basically owned uh they were a billboard company that expanded into television and radio and and I think they became number one but but in any case uh, somewhere you know around the, the 2006 2007 uh yeah the same guys who had got me involved in the first radio station uh got wind of uh, a, a a couple of stations uh further east of dallas they were they were in rural <laughs> east texas about mm, 50 60 miles east of dallas just out just pretty much okay. at the outer limit of the radio range of Dallas. So, so uh, clearly a separate market. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they got word that Cumulus was going to just shut them down and, and let them go dark. Oh, and so we, we, we got the same original group together that, uh, that had bought the first station and, uh, we decided to give it another go. And, uh, and, and just to, just to uh, give you an idea of how the market for radio stations ebbs and flows, we ended up buying two stations, uh, a matching AM and an FM station. And, uh, and they had them simul broadcast. So they were, so, so the two, oh, nice. the AM station and the FM station were broadcasting the same signal, the same, same shows mm-hmm. uh, over both. Um, but you can get way out in the desert with, uh, yeah, you can get pretty far at night, especially. Um, but, uh, but, uh, we bought those two stations for the same price that we had paid for the one, uh, you know, a farm station 20 years earlier (laughs) and, uh, and got two for the same price as we had bought one for, you know, 20 years earlier. And so, you yeah, know, this shows you how, how cheap they were. You know, they, it was, and, I, and, I, and since they were going to turn them off, I, I'm, I'm wondering why, whether we couldn't have got them even cheaper, but, uh, but uh, that's what they talked us into. But, but we bought the two stations and started over again. And, uh, and, uh, and, so, and it, was, uh, it, was, it was, you know, a different go of it because uh, it, it, we, we, uh, we tweaked the format, but we didn't radically change it because out, out in East Texas, it's, it's that's the the heart of country music territory, and so sure, you know, we we tweaked it a little bit from away from modern country music to alt country. You know, there there was one college okay. in the broadcast area where it's going to try and try and get the crowd to be a little younger, but that, that was a tough sell. Anyway, the mm-hmm. the second go around was was much harder than the first. Uh, um, yeah, and uh, you know, we when we bought the stations, they were they were losing money. We just it took us probably close to ten years to get them profitable, and they never became well. But oh, but geez. they were always borderline. You know, they were they were mm. People, yeah, everybody, everybody was making you know, a living. We, got, we paid all our expenses and stuff, and had small annual losses for several years, and then they became break even for several years, and then small profits for a few years and uh and by the time we got it uh, turned around to be at least profitable uh you know the guys that were running the station day to day they were they were ready to retire they had, they had lived their dream twice and so we uh yeah. we uh 
we I just sold these stations almost exactly a year ago. It was a year ago, March. So it's been like 14 months ago that we sold those two stations. And we ended up selling them to a, to a, a, a the local car dealer who had been the, the biggest advertiser. And yeah, so we sold them to a oh. local guy because, uh, sure. you know, the, the niche for us was was our locality. Everything else was pre-programmed from out of out of the region. We we did the the Friday night football games. We did the school closing reports. You know, we did we made it very oh, very cool. locally centric. And, that, that yeah, keeps and that was listening. our niche. You know, well, and that's the difference between you know, like internet listening. It's it's hard to get local, except for like a yeah. Facebook page of a local. So so thing, anyway, but... so yeah, so I sold those two stations fourteen months ago, and then two months after that. Uh, I was contacted by uh, our local public radio station. Uh, not, it's not an NPR station; it's an actual community radio station. And uh, oh, okay. uh, but they uh, they invited me to join their board of directors to uh, to help run their station because I was you know a guy with twenty years of radio experience who suddenly was out of the radio business. So so now I now sure. I'm spending my time as a volunteer director. Of a community radio station, kind of. Like I K-Boo haven't listened to KBU, but but uh, but yes, our 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 uh, our uh, DJs are each in charge of are, are their own program directors. They develop their own programs. It's 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 twenty four seven broadcasting, and uh, and it's super yeah. eclectic. We have uh, our our biggest most popular programming is uh, is Latin music. And and uh, but we also uh, yeah. are the only station that plays traditional blues, and uh, and uh, we mm-hmm. have uh, two rock programs. One is uh, one is sixties um, rock, not even classic, just before classic rock. Actual actual early sixties mm, rock. Okay, yeah. Early. Yeah, like the old garage rock. Yeah, or, or, or a little bit of the British invasion, and uh, but but yeah, all all yeah. early to mid '60s stuff. We have one program that does that, and we have one program that does jam bands. Have you ever heard the Nuggets cuts? Uh, Is that a compilation uh, disc? It's it's a compilation, and it's a company that focuses yeah, on I, just compilations from yeah, music I, of I the '60s. Of it, yeah. They're really good. So, so that's what I'm doing nowadays in the radio. So that's that's my history of radio in a nutshell. So you've also you said you started up over a hundred labels. Over a hundred. What's the process of starting a label? What is well, that? you know, it's, that? it's much like? different now than it was, uh, but. Uh, yeah, um, I imagine. You know, the, the, the heyday for independent labels uh, was, for me anyway, the, uh, the 80s, eight, from the 80s into the early 90s. And, uh, and you know, the, yeah. the, uh, it, a, lot a lot of independent, independent labels. labels well, up, you know, yeah. that, was, that was, you know, your Seattle scene was starting. Uh, I guess that mm-hmm. floated over into Portland a bit. And, uh, and, and here mm-hmm. in Dallas, we had what we call the deep Ellum scene. And, uh, you know, that was the, the third of the great scenes that I was involved in. And, uh, you know, I, I did mention that before, but, but the first great scene, music scene that I was involved in 
was the uh, the the New York new wave punk scene was CBG, CGBs, oh, yeah, yeah. Max's Kansas City, CGBs. yeah, and, and, and that all mm-hmm. took off uh, in, in like my junior senior years of high school. Going oh, down you were, to the so city you were going down to the yeah, city so, for that. So 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 here, yeah, this is this is oh, the thing. Wow. I guess you know, rewinding back to early or earlier in my life, uh, you know, my involvement in music was pure, pretty much purely as a fan, going you know through grade school and whatnot. Uh, except that except that I knew a lot of musicians. Uh, uh, Pete Seeger was a neighbor of mine and very friendly with us, and uh, and yeah, so so oh, the, wow. Love the whole, yeah. I, I Rest in peace, brother. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I I'd known him since I was eight mm. years old. And uh, yeah, oh, in fact, geez. just another aside. Pete Seeger personally taught me all the words to "This land is your land." <laughs> yeah, in third grade, he did because uh, uh, Woody Guthrie had just died, and uh, and Pete came into our. Uh, third grade class uh, a couple of months after Woody died and said, you know, that this great friend of his had died and he wrote this wonderful song and he was going to sit there and teach our class all five verses, including the commie verses, <laughs> which he didn't call them that. He just said the, the, yeah. the verses that people don't usually sing. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, he, he, he sat down and taught, taught our entire class all five verses to this land is your land when I was eight. Is that something? That well, stuck that with? did sure, and uh, and one of my best friends in uh, in growing up in school was friends with Pete, and so they would have him over the house periodically, and uh, so so yeah, See? so I mean you know got to go know the guy a little bit, uh, and and you know he he uh, he was the same private public he he was the same guy all the time. Yeah, that's I, I can authentic. See that in him. He's totally an authentic, authentic human being. And and uh, and, and just to, to follow the Pete Seeger line a little bit too, I was uh, one of the early uh, volunteers on on the uh, Sloop Clearwater that they uh, put together to uh, publicize uh, cleaning up the Hudson River and uh, the, you know, really the beginnings of the environmental movement up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there was one of the very first uh, folk festivals uh, uh, started when I was in high school and it's called the Clearwater Festival and it's still going on today. It's the, mm-hmm. one of the longest running festivals in the country. And uh, so, so uh, you know, I was happy I was there at the beginning of that, but in any case, going to, going back, uh, you know, I, high school came along and the new wave thing and the punk thing started down in the city. And that was, that was all the buzz, you know, cause especially if you're reading the village voice, that was, that was like the must do thing. Right. So it was the, all, so all the cool kids were starting to right, head down right. there. And uh, then when I went to college, uh, which was just further upstate in New York, I uh, very quickly lucked into the job as the college concert promoter. And, and uh, well, it, free tickets. Better than that. <laughs> I, 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 I seduced my wife with front, yeah. shows, front row tickets to every show. <laughs> Yes. 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 How would you like a front row ticket to every show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marry me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but you know my 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 uh, I I the 
discovered really I had a pretty good talent for spotting talent. And, uh, and so yeah. uh, a good part of what I, I mean, I did all sorts of shows. I mean, I, I came out of the folky movement. So I brought a lot of the Hudson River folk people up. Uh, Pete's brother Mike Seeger, I brought him up, and Jay Lindunger, a lot of a lot of traditional folkies. <laughs> I, I brought them up to play at my college, but I also started pulling the CBGB bands. Yeah, so you know, I so I got oh, really? the, the Talking Heads on like their first tour out of New York City to do two shows. They did an no early way. show and a late show for me. <laughs> yeah, I and I still remember. How you know how much I paid that? them? Oh my god. <laughs> 1500 bucks for two shows. How much? <laughs> for a yeah, college? Wow. Yeah, we sold tickets for three amazing. bucks a piece. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, so, yeah, so I had a lot of memorable, memorable shows of bands that turned into big deals, you know? So, so yeah, so I, I really kind of pride myself yeah. on that, that I was able to spot bands that were going places like before they went places. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, yeah. They were they Rhode were Rhode Island, Rhode Island school, school design project, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, Rhode, and, Rhode Island uh, school and in fact, design. I'm still, yeah. I'm still in touch with uh, Chris and Tina. You know, the rhythm section from the band. They're Facebook friends of mine. Well, mm -hmm. Chris is anyway. Chris and Tina share oh, good. one web Facebook page. But uh, but yeah, they're they're, wow. they're they're still in touch and cool people. And uh, in fact, uh, just I'll, I'll plug it. Chris nice. has got a uh, autobiography coming out this month, I think. And uh, so, yeah, if you want to, want to get a, a, a biography that uh, covers this whole scene, it's coming out this month. Yeah. So, that so fun. Uh, does it have a? It like, does, a but I don't. I don't remember the name of it right like, now. But I mean, something? if you just look up Chris Franz, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chris Franz autobiography. You know, if you Google that, you'll pull it right up because they've been pre-selling it now for a few months. Oh, cool. Maybe I'll link it. Yeah. In. So, uh, yeah, Chris so. will appreciate that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so yeah, so I had a, a talent for spotting bands that became big and, and I, and, uh, I'll tell you just, uh, another small an anecdote. I, uh, I, uh, went to a, a reunion group of people that went to my school. They, they, they try to do uh, alum alumni meetups every now and then. And, uh, when I was, uh, Mm -hmm. When I was in college there at Binghamton, you know, it, there was there was, you know, I inherited a tradition of legendary shows at the school, and and the the big legend uh, at my school when I was there as a student and booking shows was that the school had booked the Grateful Dead in one of their first shows, and uh, and like you know a 1967 show like before they were anybody. Well, yeah, wow. a year, a year removed from that. Basically. Yeah. So, so, and, and not only did yeah. it, was it legendary that they had booked the dead so early at, at my school, but the show itself became legendary among deadheads, among all their tape collectors and whatnot, as a particularly good show. And uh, and the uh, the dead have a nice uh, have an anthology uh, called Dick's Picks that where they put out historical shows on CD. And, uh, and they actually put a CD mm -hmm. out of the show at my school from the 60s as one of their great shows in history. 
so 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 this was the history of my school that I was trying to live up to. And, you know, 30 years later, after I went there, uh, I was at this reunion thing and uh, and somebody mentioned, wow, is it true that the school actually booked the Talking Heads like on their first tour? (laughs) It was like my my Talking Heads show had become the new legend. (laughs) It's still it's still a legend. It's still a legend. Yeah. That's amazing. No, I guess they're not... doing something now. Dave, David's got oh, David, a David, David show David's going on. Doing some things. Uh, it's on, it was on Broadway. Yeah, and it's been smushed by the the virus. But uh, but this this latest show that he did, he he put it on tour around the country. I saw, I saw it three times on the tour. Uh, I saw it in Oklahoma. I saw it in Austin. I saw it in Dallas. And it, it really was a unique show. Uh, where, you know, he had a band that was about a dozen members and all the instruments were portable. So it's like the drummer carried the drum like a marching band and, uh, and everybody carried their instruments and they choreographed the entire show. The entire show was the band dancing in formation, playing music while they, while they danced. And... And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't say enough good things about it. And then after, after they toured it for like a year and a half, uh, they did a Broadway residency. That was a big hit. And so they were about to do their second residency. It was about to start like right about now, I think. But, they, but it got squished. So hopefully, hopefully you get another shot at it. It's a fantastic show. So, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of all of them. Now, now, one thing I had planned this year uh, – um, uh, Jerry Harrison, who was the uh, keyboard player and uh, and second guitarist for the Talking Heads, and probably the the least known of the bunch, but uh, he uh, he had just booked a tour uh, with some other band that I'm not that familiar with, but it was going to be kind of a cross between the second band's music and the Talking Heads music with uh, with Jerry Harrison in the lead. But, uh, but you know, that, that was what I was looking forward to this year that got canceled. So, and, and you don't hear much from Jerry, but, uh, you know, Jerry was actually the only one of the talking heads that had a prior history in the music business. He was a member of, uh, Jonathan Richmond's modern lovers, uh, out of Boston. So he was the only one with music experience that when the, when the heads started out. So so anyway, enough about that. But that so so yeah, my first big music scene was uh, was the CBGB's new wave scene, and uh, I used to hire those bands and bring them upstate. And then I moved to Austin, and uh, landed in the middle of the uh, the Cosmic Cowboy scene. And and I'll tell you one interesting thing. I, I don't know if you have you ever moved from one region of the country to another. You there? Hello. Um, well, I'm assuming you're still there, but you can't hear me. Say something, Garland. Well, uh, at the risk of uh, being a fool, I'll babble on. Uh, you know, I landed in this scene in Austin, Texas, having moved there from New York. 
and experienced a uh, a three year deja vu <laughs> that uh, you know Austin culturally was running about three years behind New York, and so that whole new wave scene that I had just lived through in New York repeated itself when it finally reached Austin, Texas in 79. And uh, so I got to relive the whole new wave punk thing when it hit Texas for the first time. And it was kind of weird, but kind of fun too. Now, it is kind of bothering me that I can't hear you. Are you there? Are you there? Hello? Okay, I'm, I got a text that you can hear me. So keep texting and, uh, and we'll go for it for there. So you know, I just asked you a question about whether you had moved. So send me a text and answer, I guess. Because, yeah, I just told you. I, I went through a deja vu coming to Texas. But, but go ahead and uh, keep texting me and uh, I'll, uh, I'll do a one-sided interview here. But, uh, but yes, you got to keep shepherding me. Tell me where, where we're going on our conversation next. Punk scene, punk scene. Well, I'm going to tell you, um, you know, of course, the original punk bands, you know, the, the Ramones were kind of my first punk band. Uh, and, uh, and I'm going to tell you, honestly, the very first time I saw them, I wasn't entirely impressed. But, uh, but you know, they had a couple of numbers that were uh, kind of catchy. And that, I guess that was enough for them to latch on. Their record became a big deal. So they, they did become a big deal and I grew to love them. Uh, but uh, Austin, you know, had its own uh, punk scene and, uh, and they, had a, they had a brand called Cow Punk, <laughs> which mixed a little rockabilly in with their punk. And uh, one of those first bands was the Rank and File. And, uh, and, and there was a band called the skunks that I absolutely loved. And, uh, and, you know, the, the, uh, the leaders of those two respected bands, uh, rank and file, uh, Alejandro Escovedo was, uh, was a leader of that band. And, uh, you know, he's still around now as a solo artist and, uh, and the, the skunks, um, had Jesse sublet was a leader of that band and now he's he's a fairly well-regarded writer now he, he just uh finished uh co-writing a book on the history of the armadillo world headquarters uh and uh and so and he's one of my facebook friends that you could probably uh link to that uh you know to get a copy of that book which is fabulous because you know the armadillo head world headquarters was probably 50% of the reason I decided to move to Austin from New York because, you know, I had this passion for music and Austin had this hot music scene and the Armadillo World Headquarters was a concert venue that epitomized 
the Austin scene because it was famous for being able to combine uh, country music and punk and rock and roll and everything under the sun, jazz. I mean, it was a place where very, very different audiences could meet and mix and learn to love each other. And it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful place. And, you know, one day, one day it would be uh, Willie Nelson and the next day it would be the Ramones and the next day, uh, Frank Zappa. In fact, Frank Zappa played a very big role in making the Armadillo World Headquarters famous and legendary worldwide, not just in Austin, by uh, recording a live album there. Uh, and, you know, Zappa recorded one of his best live albums at a show at the Armadillo. And, uh, and you know, the, uh, the close of the album, as he's finishing his final number, uh, he's saying goodbye to the audience. He says, goodbye, Austin, Texas, wherever you are. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, everybody in the world wanted to know where Austin, Texas was after hearing that record. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, it, it became quite the legendary place. And I can tell you honestly that I was there in the beer garden at the Armadillo less than two hours after arriving in Austin from New York. I mean, it was the very first place I had to go. So, uh, and I was fortunate enough to catch the, the final two years of its existence. It ended up closing during my third year of law school. And, uh, you know, it remains legendary in the hearts and minds of Texans uh, of a certain, uh, certain musical bent. And so that was you know, the, uh, the second great music scene that I was involved in. And uh, then, you know, moved to Dallas. And Dallas, when I first moved to Dallas, was a cultural oasis. I mean, I mean, not oasis, desert. It was a cultural desert. It was nothing going on in Dallas when I first moved here. The downtown died at six o'clock when people left. There was no scene at all. And, you know, here I am really wanting to practice entertainment law and not having much in the way of... Hey and there, there, Charles. Welcome. Welcome back to the part two of the Garland Pepper Show. We got Charles McGarry on the line. And uh, we've been... We just finished uh, about an hour, a little bit over an hour, I think, of the first half of the Charles McGarry Show and on the Garland Pepper Presents podcast. Uh, we've talked a lot about passion, music, politics. We were just in Austin, Texas, and I think we were on our way over to Dallas. Yeah, uh, and I'm glad to have you back where I can hear you there because it was, uh, it was, that was feeling weird. like an astronaut stranded in space out here to talking to you myself. Were doing you were doing phenomenal. I was like, wow, he's, he's pulling this off. That's amazing. You know, yeah. over here, like, I'm yelling, and blah, can you hear me? You know, yeah. And I went in and cleaned up the, the port with my toothbrush. And, yeah, I don't know if anybody heard all that, but, you know, that's what happens. It's technology. Okay. Are you showing me connected? You're, I'm recording. You're good? We are good. We are okay. on it. So, yeah. So, anyway, I was in Austin, Texas, and uh, joined the scene there, going to law school. Uh, intent on practicing entertainment law uh, because that was my passion, but at the same time also indulging my passion in politics. And I'll, 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 I'll 
tread back to Austin before I hit the Dallas a little bit because I, I you know, there's so many ways in which I've been very, very lucky uh, just in time and place and circumstance. And, you know, landing in Austin, Texas in the late 70s was fairly miraculous as far as hitting the music scene. But being at the University of Texas in the state capitol uh, also put me in direct touch with the, the political in the state of Texas. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean... You work well, with I'm, Ann? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you, my, my labor law professor was Ann's husband. Oh, yes. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Ann, at the time, was a county commissioner in, in Travis County. Ah. And, uh, and so, yeah, became a very early acquaintance. And, uh, but not only that, uh, my very first job uh, was as a law clerk to the Texas Attorney General, a guy named Mark White, who subsequently became governor. And, uh, and, and my immediate supervisor in the Attorney General's office, she was dating the land commissioner who so so like almost instantly my social circle included you know a half a dozen statewide officials and future statewide officials and you're this bright upcoming yeah lawyer lawyer from from new york they and you know i used to i used to get a lot of shit from being a transplanted yankee but but for your accent there yeah (laughs) but 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 to their credit you know the uh, the political leaders uh they 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 didn't uh, they didn't see prejudice. They saw potential. So so yes, I I got a very good job right off the bat working for the attorney general, and wow. uh, yeah. and uh, to uh, to show you how closely my passions in music and politics have tracked over the years, my uh, the story about how I got to Dallas from Austin. Um was that uh, I uh, decided to apply for a job as a law clerk for an appellate judge, appellate court here in, in Dallas. You know, clerking for appellate courts is one of those, you know, short-term prestige jobs that you can try and get at a, at a law school. And you Put it uh, on your resume and then you're, uh, yeah, they, they, you're good yeah, for the next haul. You're good. For, you're good. Right. Because because they know it's a prestige job. There's very few openings and uh, you're working at a very high level from the get go. And uh, so I I drove all right, where I scheduled an interview with the court uh, to coincide with a Rolling Stones concert at the Cotton Bowl in <laughs> Dallas. <laughs> This is a man with priorities. <laughs> yeah, so I said, I'm, if I'm going to Dallas, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone, and I'm going to schedule my interview for a Friday afternoon. And uh, that Friday night, the Rolling Stones were playing, uh, you know, like two miles away from the court at the Cotton Bowl. And uh, and so I did the interview, uh, ran to the hotel to change out of my suit, and uh, ran to join, you know, 80,000 people at the Cotton Bowl for what became a fairly legendary Stones concert. Because in the middle of the concert, there was this torrential downpour that was, the rain came down so hard that you could no longer see the stage. Oh my God, that's a lot of rain. <laughs> that is a lot of rain. And Big be- drops. And believe it or not, the band never slowed down a beat. They just played right through it. 
Uh, I think Jagger said something like in between songs is oh my. <laughs> I think that was the only, <laughs> uh, I think that's the only thing he said. And but they didn't lose a second. They just played right through it. It was totally awesome. Some bands never dial it in, no matter what. Yeah, just never did. So so and and they were it was the first of two nights and uh, so even now people still talk about that 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 Stones concert. They say, Well you were you at the wet one or the dry one? <laughs> the wet one that famous. I, I, I was at the wet one yeah mm-hmm. i ended up getting a soundboard recording of that show too for posterity so yeah so so that was great so but anyway i ended up getting the job <laughs> so so Excellent. double double bonus i uh make one trip to dallas get go to see a legendary stones concert and get and get the job that moves me here it was a and really good weekend it was a good weekend and uh so you know, I moved up to Dallas, and uh, as I was saying before we got disconnected, was that I discovered that uh, Dallas was fairly much a, a cultural desert, and uh, there oh. it, there was no night scene whatsoever in Dallas when I first moved here, and really not. But but there we were on. It was on the verge of starting one, and uh, okay. there was this neighborhood. Uh, called Deep Ellum, which is right at the edge of downtown, that had been famous back in the 20s as, uh, as, a, as a home of the black blues. Yeah. Blind Lemon Jefferson was there. He, okay. He used to play on the street corners in Deep Ellum. And, uh, Deep Ellum. and, uh, and the, the famous Robert Johnson recordings, you know, they're, they're basically the Bible of all that is blues and rock and roll. Those recordings were made in Dallas, so okay. so, so so it had a history. It, it had, had a history. It just had it, it, yeah. That neighborhood had, had become very run down, and uh, and basically empty. And uh, and what happens with run down, empty neighborhoods is you get a lot of entrepreneurs. And uh, my first job after the court clerkship uh, was for a law <laughs> firm that did a lot of real estate, and. Uh, and again, there's just so many lucky things that have happened to me over the years. But you know, working for this firm, doing real estate work, one of one of our clients was intent on buying up all of Deep Pelham, and uh, and because it was very run down and 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 right next to downtown, he saw it as a, an affordable opportunity. Sure. And uh, and so he started buying up all these places, and uh, and you know, looking for people to rent these very old buildings to. And, you know, the very first entrepreneurs into that neighborhood were people wanting to start nightclubs. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I found myself representing landlord of these people who were starting nightclubs. And, uh, and, you know, I would mention to them, you know, I'm, I'm very experienced in the, concert promotion and booking bands and stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe at some point, uh, you know, I can help you with that, you know, with live music and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and out of that grew this new scene with these early clubs and a lot of, you know, at first very crappy bands, but the bands quickly got better and the audiences started coming. And, and, and soon by the mid eighties, there was this, you know, deep Elm scene starting, and uh, and some, you know, great bands came out of that scene. Uh, 
You know, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians came out of that scene. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, did she marry Paul? Didn't she marry Paul Simon? She married Paul Simon. And I, I give you a little tidbit news there. Uh, you know, she, she's been married to Paul now. They're still married. And yeah. they've, they've been living in New York for the last, uh, you know, 25 years, being, mm-hmm. being, you know, mom and dad and all that. And so, uh, they just uh, announced uh, about a year ago that uh, they were moving to Dallas. Oh, they are? Yeah, so they're, they're coming here. They may already be here. I, I haven't heard any follow-up, but I, but I did hear it from Paul Simon himself that he was moving to Dallas, and he even told me which neighborhood he was moving into. Uh, nice. So, so you know, they're either here or, or they're going to be imminently here. And, mm-hmm. and, and they, over the years, they, they have done some very interesting appearances together here in Dallas. You know, there was a, a fella who uh, had been brutally beaten and suffered brain damage uh, leaving a nightclub, and uh, Edie knew him. And so she brought, oh. she brought Paul down, and they did a benefit for the guy. And wow. and that was a fun show. I mean, it was a great it was a great show for a good cause. Uh, but yeah. uh, but uh, you know you, yeah because they 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 do a hilarious husband and wife shtick on stage when they're together, and they and just, they just don't do those joint shows really anywhere I've else. I've never seen them do one. No, but no I think I think that's together. strictly a Dallas phenomenon. Wow. So because that's because it's her home and that's where she's yeah yes yeah, it's, it's her home and thing. this was a friend of hers too so. Yeah. So, sure. so, so, but anyway, she, she said that she had, she had done her share of living in New York for Paul and that it was Paul's turn to come live in Dallas for her. <laughs> oh boy. He's a New York kid. I mean, yeah, he definitely his... is. He definitely is. But, but, but Dallas, Dallas has really changed in the last five to 10 years, especially it's become very much a cool city. Uh, and, and, and really pretty much the opposite of what it was when I first moved here. I, I said, you know, I moved here, it was a cultural desert. Then suddenly this Deep Elm scene started. It got cool. Another band that came out of the Deep Elm scene was the Flaming Lips. Oh, yeah. yeah they, live, they live in Oklahoma City, but they first broke out of the Deep Elm Club. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've seen that guy once, that was, or that band once. They're pretty yeah, good. Yeah, they're, they're, they're an amazing live band. I mean, you know, the records are they're very prolific. I think they've got like 30 or 40 albums. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, and they're and, and, they're, and they're very hit and miss, but uh, but live they are a phenomenon. Yeah, it's a very cool show. It's a cool, it's it's a cool show. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and and they started in the in the small clubs here, so uh, so it's always good when they come back too. I mean, and they, and they maintain a relationship with town in in terms of uh, like when they do like record store day and stuff, record store releases. Uh, they show up. Yeah, they. Yeah, Wayne, the, the lead singer, he almost always comes down and does a record store appearance and and has some mm-hmm. you know unique product to, to sell. <clears throat> so so yeah, they, he's maintained touch. He's been at it a long time. They've been doing this. Well, for a well, mid eighties. You know, mid mid eighties. Yeah. They were playing these little clubs that held you know three four hundred people and they wouldn't get the crowd half that size. You know, mm-hmm. and and they really weren't very good when they started. Like, a lot of these bands, and this is true in New York too. I mean, the Ramones were terrible when they started. Uh, you know, oh yeah. But, but, and the, and the, the Flaming Lips were terrible when they started, but these bands, they start out terrible, but they say, they stay you know, dedicated to it and they hone themselves, you know? And, and, and yeah. from what I hear, you know, the Beatles did the same thing on their trips to Germany. They were pretty raw and 
and not that good. And, and, and the constant sure. playing in Germany is where they hone their skills. Same thing. I've seen, I've mm-hmm. seen it now, you know, in multiple scenes where the, the bands start out, not that good, but they're dedicated and they hone their craft. And before you know it, they're stars. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's what it is. It's just about continuing on. Yeah. It's perseverance. Yes, it is. So and that's what, that's a lesson for all of us. Yes, it is. So, so that's, that's that, that got me to Dallas, got me to the music scene here. Uh, oh, and, and I guess where this came into then is the, the late eighties and nineties or, you know, the blossoming of these, of these indie labels. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and you, I think you would ask me, what, what does it take to start a record label? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. What does it take? Well, I mean, you know, looking at it from a lawyer, I mean, I, you know, it's a package of contracts. It's because the whole thing's contractual relationships and, right. and dealing with, you know, the rights to the recordings, rights to the music publishing. And, uh, you know, of course nowadays, you know, record labels are trying to, squeeze their way into live performance revenue too because the record business is really in trouble i mean the record the record business has doesn't exist anymore really but the recorded music business uh has shrunk to where it used to be just over 50 percent of us of an artist revenue used to come from recorded music now it's negligible i mean it's you know 10 percent for a successful artist and the and uh you know, pretty much uh, a loss leader for everybody else. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really tough for musicians. It, very and tough. Now this year, without without touring, I don't, that's been the to- only touring way you've been has able to been ninety percent of artist revenue for at least the last six seven years. I would say the streaming has taken off, but it's it, and and you can make a dent in streaming revenue as an indie label. Um, but it's very much, uh, a form of gamesmanship. Um, you know, the, the, the thing has become, uh, producing, uh, playlists on, on the major streaming services and trying uh-huh. and trying to get your, your playlist to take off because then you get, you know, repeat hearings. It's all about the repeat hearings. It's all about numbers. And, and, yeah. and, the, and, and the, uh, you know, for an old school guy like me, you know, who bought a lot of, uh, vital and bought a lot of CDs, um, you know, the idea of the, the conversion ratios that they're using, you know, where, where, you know, you got to get, you know, 27,000 streams of a song before it's the equivalent of a sale or something that's, which is right. ridiculous because that's absurd. It is absurd. <clears throat> You know, they, now they've determined that that's what's necessary in order for the streaming services to survive. But, but from an artist's perspective, you know, if I bought a new CD, I mean, even if I loved it to death, you know, playing it a couple dozen times would be the outer limit. You know, I mean, most CDs right, I bought, right. I played two or three times, put them away. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's got to be something that, you know, when, when you were young, you did that. I mean, you played something to death. Well, yeah, yeah. But you, even you know. playing it to death, you know, if you were realistic about it and tried to count how many times it constitutes playing something to death, it would be in the dozens. It wouldn't be in the thousands. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, my daughter listens to these K-pop songs. Ah, uh, yeah. And now she can I, s- sing in Korean. I have a niece who's totally into the K-pop thing. Yeah. 
it's yeah well, I, I tell you you know, you know being uh, being an older older music guy now too that i've i've found that uh, my my value to my uh, children and younger relatives uh, ha- has everything to do with contacts and <laughs> and nothing to do with my taste in music <laughs> but uh, yeah, but for yeah. my niece who's this total k-pop fan she uh, you know was telling me about these bands that she'd like and i you know i'd never heard of them but i check into them and uh, of course, one of one of the huge stars in K-pop right now is a band called BTS. Okay. Yeah, my daughter's well, way totally. Into BTS. You know, and they're playing stadium shows. All right. All right. Yeah, she went up to Seattle okay. to see them. Well, I'm going to say four years ago or something. I uh, I went to the trouble of tracking down BTS's management in Korea, and. Uh, and obtaining from them an autograph poster <laughs> from from the band, oh. and uh, and sent that yes. to my niece like before. Best, Best uncle, uncle ever. ever. You get it. <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, I got I got lots of good stories like that. You know, from I, I used to represent the uh, the company that uh, that produces. Uh, uh, Oh shit! The very the very first talent show. I'm, I'm having a brain fart here. Uh, no, uh, American Idol. American Idol. American, oh, American Idol. Idol. Yeah. So so yeah, the, the, it was a British company that produced it, and uh, and mm-hmm. I, I I represented them, and oh, wow. uh, so for my thirteenth birthday party, I got to take her. Whole, you know, they after at the end of each season they would do a tour of like the top 10 finalists for the season of the show. And, uh, I got, uh, my, my, for my daughter's 13th birthday party, I got the entire party, uh, you know, backstage with the American Idol finalists and, and front wow. row seats to their show. <laughs> connections, connections, connections make, yeah. Yeah. You can so make that, things that's, happen. Uh, yeah. That's, those are the kind of perks I enjoy nowadays is what, what can I do for my kids and my niece and, you know, that sort of thing. So you were a judge for a while. You had to drop out. Of uh, for yeah, a couple of years, a couple or... of years. Uh, well, like I said, I've had these twin passions of politics and music and uh, I've never relinquished either one. I've, I've, and you know, I've also, I've been, I've been self-employed basically my whole life just so mm-hmm. I could follow my passions. And, uh, and, you know, as I said, when I was in Austin, I became, you know, fairly instantly connected with the, with the upper elite of the state democratic party. And, uh, and so, you know, Ann Richards obviously became governor and, uh, Uh and, and love Ann Richards, by the way, I, uh, she was elected in 1990. And uh, in 1992, uh, there was a bit, you know, Texas was uh, was on the verge of of going red. You know, I mean, it was a, it was it had been a blue state, but it was a Dixiecrat state. And uh, right. when Reagan was elected in 80, uh, Texas elected its first Republican governor. And then when Reagan got reelected in 84, uh, you know, Republicans became a majority. The Democrats fought back and won a couple and 
86 and 90, and then Mark White became governor, then Ann Richards became governor. And then 92 was a Republican year. And uh, in 92, the, uh, the local chief justice of the Court of Appeals here uh, won an election to be promoted to the Supreme Court, created a vacancy. And uh, you know, I simply uh, submitted an application to Governor Richards for the job, just like applying for a regular job. Uh, just, oh wow! So they don't. You don't. Elect well, we do. Down there. But but vacancies are filled. It was an appointment was an to appointment. fill a vacancy. And then Correct. and then you have to run in the next election to keep the job. And so, uh, you know, so my my political career was was uh, was good, but it was very short. <laughs> well, because uh, yeah, I, I applied for the job and I I I got the job. You know, I I. You know, got interviewed down at the at the uh, the Capitol, and and they they gave me the job, and Governor Richards appointed me Chief Justice, and uh, I became the the youngest Chief Justice in Texas history. Wow! Well, there's yeah, there's kudos, and uh, also the first board certified appeals expert ever to serve on an appeals court. So so you know, I had a lot going for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thought I did very well in the job. I uh, wrote one opinion that became famous and uh, kind of a landmark decision. And so, but it was famous, but controversial. It was definitely a lightning rod decision that, uh, you know, that the, the liberals loved and the conservatives hated. <laughs> what, which which well, one was, which and, one was and, that? And, and, and when I tell you what the proposition for is, you're going to, you're going to be remarkable. It's remarkable that it was controversial, but the, uh, the, the proposition was the, does somebody who's convicted of a crime based on false testimony have a right to get a new trial? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, you know, does, doesn't it seem obvious that they should? Okay. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's okay. a gimme on Well, that. for over a hundred years, the law in Texas was that in civil cases where juries are awarding money, they can be overruled on appeal and found to have made a mistake. But in criminal cases, juries were never wrong. <laughs> and if they convicted you, you stayed convicted and, and, and you were not even allowed to appeal the jury's decision. Do you think that goes back uh, to racism? Absolutely, it does. And and and, yeah. and I well, let me tell you this story because this is a great story. Um, I I wrote this decision, uh, you know, explaining how absurd it was because it was the very same sentence in the Constitution that governed in criminal cases that courts of appeals had the power to review factual decisions of the jury. And, and, and but, right. but Texas has a weird court system where we have basically two Supreme Courts. We have a criminal Supreme Court and a, and a civil Supreme Court. There are different courts. The criminal cases go up to one court and civil cases go up to the other. And the two courts had interpreted mm -hmm. the same sentence differently. And, uh, and, and the, the level court I was at, which was right below the Supreme Court, uh, we heard both cases and, and I you know, wrote this decision that said, this is absurd. It's the same sentence. And depending on whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, the juries either don't know what they're doing or they're, or, or they're perfect. They're, they're flawless. And, uh, and the, the process of reviewing jury decisions and overruling them in civil court had been well developed for over a hundred years. 
but disregarded in criminal cases for that same hundred years. So anyway, I wrote this decision saying, no, the law needs to be the same in both kinds of cases and gave the example of somebody convicted on the basis of a corrupt informant, but had a, yeah. but had an alibi sworn to by 40 nuns. <laughs> so, so I said, you know, are you going to believe the corrupt informant or the 40 nuns who give them an alibi? And, and right. under the law right. as it was, you had to go with the corrupt informant. And I said, it's ridiculous. You know, three appellate judges ought to be able to decide the guy deserves a second jury because the guy can be convicted for any number of improper reasons, including racism. And, uh, and so miracle of miracles, the, the court of criminal appeals, the high court in criminal cases agreed with me and, and changed the law. And uh, so, so my opinion changed 100 years of law in Texas. So what groups well, came well, after the you? DAs, number one, and, and the newspapers. <laughs> the news, the yeah, newspapers said I was, I, was, I was soft on crime and, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, the, whole, the whole nine yards. Soft on crime and the prosecutors said this is no fair <laughs> that, you know, we shouldn't have to appeal this once we get a hard-earned conviction and blah, blah, blah. So anyway. Well, the logic is you're soft on not actually Yeah, yeah. Well, and I said, yes, innocence should prevail. <laughs> but, but, but here, here's the amazing thing. Yeah. Three years after that was adopted as a law statewide, there was an incident in a small rural town in Texas. Uh, the example I had given of the, of the corrupt informant came was true. Yeah, uh, they had what these call these these uh, drug task force. They had all this government money that actually paid bounties to informants for drug convictions. And so, you know, so this guy had gone oh. into the business of being a crooked uh, informant on drug deals so he could collect these bounties. And, sure. and it only came to light that this guy was crooked because he, he, he stupidly focused on this town and they ended up convicting 80% of the entire black adult population of this town for drug dealing. Eight. What? This guy, because, because this, this guy, guy was, guy was ratting on everybody and, 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 and convict and they were convicting them all. But yeah, 80% of all the adult black males in this one wow. town were all convicted of drug dealing. And of course the obvious question becomes, well, who the fuck were they selling it to? <laughs> you know, who's left to sell it to if the entire town is, you know, <laughs> You know, yeah, so, exactly. so anyway, it, it became obvious that this was a corrupt deal. And and uh, and and not only because of those numbers, but because uh, two or three of them had rock solid alibis. And uh, they, you know, they, you know they, so so proved the guy was lying. And uh, because the law had changed, uh, all the rest of them were suddenly allowed to appeal. And all those convictions were thrown out. And, wow. Uh, what county was this? It, a town was called Tulia, Texas, and it's about 80, 90 miles south of Dallas. I don't remember, I don't remember the county. Okay. But the, the, the town was Tulia, Tulia, Texas. And okay. uh, so, yeah, that's something that can be, you can Google that because uh, that's, that it became a fairly infamous scandal. And, and here's the thing. You know, because the law had changed, they all, all justice was ultimately done. They were all ultimately set free. But 
the, my decision was still controversial, even though it had come to the rescue of the scandal. And about, I'm going to say about seven, eight years ago, now Texas has been solid red. I was going to say I was judge, appointed judge in 93. I, got, I lost the, the Newt Gingrich contract on America. It was when George Dunn oh, yeah. became governor, beat Ann Richards. It, the beginning it of the was end the beginning of, of the end, and in Texas, it was the stark beginning of the end because the '94 election was was a wipeout. Every Democratic elected official lost, and there hasn't been a statewide Democrat in Texas since. So '94 was the beginning of everything, yeah. and so I got swept out uh, right at the beginning of when Texas became a red state, and uh, and the Supreme Court, the Court of Criminal Appeals. You know, when I was a judge, four Democrats and five Republicans, but it's been, you know, nine Republicans ever since. And about seven, eight Mm -hmm. years ago, they overruled that decision. They changed the law back to the way it was, you know, 100 years ago. Yeah. So so now once you're convicted, you stay convicted. Wow. Yeah. So 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 there was a there was a period of, you know. 20, 25 years where, where I made a big difference and then and then they erased me from the year. <laughs> so right. you grew up in upstate New York. There probably wasn't much Well, there wasn't very there. many blacks either. It was pretty darn white. And there was yeah, there was yeah. But even but even in New York City at the time you were going there, it was a different I mean racism's always existed, even yeah. in the cities and such, but it's different. Well, yeah, it's, in, it in is different, South. and and you know, but but uh, but you know, to be honest, it, it did exist up north too, um, to a somewhat lesser extent because there were more mixed neighborhoods. But uh, but 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 you know what was right. different right. then? It, you know, there's always been this sense of us versus them, and and what I you know like to tell people is that you know when I was growing up, there was uh, you know. Racism wasn't just white versus black. It it was intra intra tribal rivalries among the whites too, especially in New York. You know where sure. you had Italian neighborhoods and Jewish neighborhoods, and and the neighborhoods were ethnically divided. Uh, and and the, the, in yeah. the town, the small town that I grew up in, there were mostly New York City refugees, in, including my family. Now my family mm-hmm. was Irish. And we came out of Hell's Kitchen out of Manhattan, which was an Irish slum. And, uh, you know, Streets of New York, Gangs of New York, that movie, Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, the, the Irish gangs, yeah, the Irish yeah. slums. You know, so there was that whole history of the, of the, yeah. you know, the Irish were, were the bottom of the social ladder before, before the blacks were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, right. and, and the power structure, uh, it was largely Italian. Uh, the Italians, the Italians uh, mm-hmm. you know, were a, a dominant uh, uh, culture in New York, and uh, and my neighborhood where I grew up in, in upstate New York, you know, I had, I see, I had, you know, the houses on either side of me and three houses across the street from me. Out of those five houses, three of them spoke Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's it yeah yeah three of them spoke italian and yeah. uh, and then you know there was we were the irish family in the middle so so yeah so i grew up knowing all the italian curse words 
<laughs> because because that's what you that's what you'd hear is the you know the mom nice. running out in the front yard yelling curse words at their at her kids, <laughs> and complete with the hand uh-huh. signs too. Yeah, they have to do the hand signs with it, with with yeah yeah the hand signs and maybe a rolling <laughs> uh, pin. I'm not sure if I saw the rolling pin, but yes, the 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 the, the Italian curse words and the hand signs. Uh, but uh, but you know mm-hmm. so so the uh, you know the uh, the epithets people threw at each other were you know were the ones for Italians and Poles and Jews and stuff. And so, I mean, there was, it was different because it wasn't necessarily hateful, but it was definitely competitive, like, you know, like ranking site, you know, you, where you rank on people, you know, so I mean, all you did that as a kid mm-hmm. where, you know, you're, you have like contests to insult each other. Well, Oh yeah, what do they call that? They call uh, that the dozens. You know, we we just called it like ranking. You're going to rank on somebody. So so yeah. so yes. Yeah, so, so the Italians mm-hmm. were were you know the Giddies and the Wops and the Irishes were the mix, and uh, you know you know so 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 there was a right, lot of that, right. and and that pretty much has all disappeared. You know because that had disappeared. That has disappeared. Well, I because, remember growing up with and seeing that. I mean, it was even yeah, part yeah, of yeah because comedy. well you know because you know. Irish people aren't the others anymore. <laughs> you know, they, they, they aren't the group you look down right. on. They got assimilated you know, from Kennedy on. Uh, you know, and, you know, the, the Irish, you know, developed their own little power structures and became assimilated. And, and, so, and so all of a sudden, right. you know, it was the blacks who became the other. And, and then, you know, in there, and more recently, you know, for a brief moment, you know, the Muslims became the other and, and there was less black. Yeah. Because blacks and whites, you know, were supposedly united on the same side against the Muslims. Uh, but you know, there's always been an us and them dynamic. Yeah, it's almost like we we, we have, have to have, have an, an enemy, enemy. Or, and a domestic enemy at that. Yeah. So so now yeah now it's yeah. the libtards, you know. So <laughs> yeah, it's the libtards. Yeah, you but know. but um, and it's terrible that it, that you know that you know for the first time we do have a president who considers half of America his enemy. Yeah, you because know, it's that is bizarre. I've always thought that presidency should, should be, be above a non-partisan. Yeah. yeah, it should be just a non-partisan position. Like you don't have a Republican; you just have guys who run or girls who run for. Well, president, the policies ladies. are always going to be different, and but the rhetoric should be: we're all in this together. Right? Yeah, you're of everybody. The president of That's right. America. Yeah, you're you're not a president of a party. That's for the Senate. Leader and yeah, and I'm the, not even know, sure. I'm not even sure it should be that either. I mean, you know, when I, you know, when I was in Austin working for the Attorney General, I I was involved on a daily basis with the legislature, uh, cra- crafting legislation. Yeah, and this was a time in Texas where things were pretty much split down the middle. You know, half Democrat, half Republican, and, and mm, well, no, get it was the opposite. Done. They got shit done. People, they worked oh. across party lines. Yeah, yeah, it worked the way yeah. it was supposed to. People compromised, you know, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, at election time, you know, you get you get an incumbent criticized because he compromised too much with the other side. But but most independents actually thought that was a plus. You know, the guy gets stuff done no matter who, you know, even if he's got to work with the other side. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that was well, up until Gingrich. That was, that was exactly happening right. right. That was level. up until Gingrich. Gingrich was the first one to to make uh, to to make to bring the partisan thing into the governing situation, and and Texas, mm-hmm. 
at, at least at the level he yeah had. well i mean i i mean i think that's true at any level i mean because uh you know if you if you go back uh you know bills always got passed i mean stuff got done uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, the house's chambers, well, the, the house stayed Democrat for like 40 years, but the Republican Senate, well, the Senate would flip back and forth all the time, uh, you know, from, from post-World mm-hmm. War two and, uh, and, and stuff still right. continued to get done. You know, it didn't shut things down. So, so yeah, so that, that I, I still do idealize the, you know, the notion that, you know, if you're elected, your your job is to compromise and get stuff done. Yeah, for the people. Yeah, in for your the country. Or your country, you know? or and especially yeah. during mm-hmm. a a crisis, a cri- crisis, crises have always brought the country together. Always, I mean, George George W. Yeah, Bush there's was a missed opportunity right there. Come, but when it came to 9/11, you know, he had a 90 percent approval rating. You know, the, the, yeah, because because he came together, came for, together the for the country, and and every president has been able to do that until this one. Mm-hmm. And 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 really, you know, if, if Donald Trump's purpose in life was to get reelected, he, he missed the golden chance. All he had to do was change stripes and and become a bipartisan president for the last one year of his term. And people and people would have forgot. I saw him tiptoe towards it a couple times, but then he goes back out because he knows that his people, you know, he'll he'll look at the tweets the next day, and as soon as he's yeah. like a little bit tiptoeing towards the, you know, the kind side yeah, of himself, I don't think which it's real. I don't yeah. think it's real. They well, they tear him the, up, the and he's one, back at it. The one bipartisan bill that passed that got us our twelve hundred bucks. Trump couldn't even bring himself to negotiate with Pelosi. He had to send. His uh, Treasury Secretary to do a deal with her, and and they made a deal, you know, and 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 yeah, he's he's he, I think he's well, a little he's afraid totally, of her. Totally is, but 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 yeah, he lets he lets his personal feelings affect politics, and it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't. No, it shouldn't. Especially some guy for who has such a thin skin. So so anyway, yeah. I don't I don't want to ra- I don't want to yeah, ranch your show totally off sad. the left wing end, but yeah yeah I'm a. I'm an oldie goldie leftist. No, we yeah we <laughs> typically stay away from it. Yeah, I am too. But that's uh, one of my choices I've made is to, you know, stay out of it for the most part. This we we weren't talking. We were talking more kind of around it all, and and in terms of like yeah the idealistic ideal well, of well, presidency. And, and, and my personal experience I, working you know working two years with the legislature. Let's work together. You know, I, I, yeah. Hey, Charles, are your headphones maybe getting low? Because you kind of every now and then bounce oh, okay. out. Well, I'll just try and speak up. I'm, I'm, what I'm probably doing is is letting my hand down and not holding near near enough to my face. Oh, okay. There we okay. go. Okay. So yeah, I just gotta 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 not let my hands wander around because you know I'm a New Yorker, so I use hand language too. <laughs> 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 you got to get all around. Yeah, so my hand might move away from my yeah. face, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I think it's a telephonic thing. Like, it's just bouncing around trying to get signal or something. Okay, well, let's see. I, I, I think I'm good. I think, uh, is it good now? Because I'm, I'm speaking goes, right man. into the... Uh... It keeps getting good, and then all of a sudden, it, it'll just, like, do, like, a boingy sound. Oh, well, I'm not getting a boingy sound, so I'll, like I'll try alien. to hold it. I'll, I'll try to hold it Are still. You get- 
You there? Okay, yeah, we're I'm good. There. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, we are good. Right. So uh let's get let's get back to so you what radio what what uh record labels have you uh well I've, as far as uh, you know the occasional major label deal i mean i've done a few major label deals um you know but you mainly you started them up i heard them you mainly did yeah startup yeah labels. startup labels uh you know I've, i'm i'm not entirely sure you would have heard of any of them uh but but you might have heard some of the bands that came oh really some of my friends might have, because I have okay. some friends who are well, way into but, deep but, labels. Uh, you know? I'll, I'll, I'll go with the bands, because you know, I've had you know, these indie labels that did produce bands that had successful careers. Uh, and so, uh, nice. let's see, Jacko Pierce was, uh, was a band uh, that uh, mm-hmm. is still around. It's, it's two, two SMU mm-hmm. college students who, you know, Ended up building a big audience and, uh, and uh, represented their label. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, um, I'm trying to think. I, have, I did have a, um, a label that, that signed a band that became huge afterwards. Uh, God damn. I'm going ha- to have to sit here and think about the bands. I'm going to give a shout out to yeah. all them uh, Methodist rockers out there. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. see. Well, of course, um, uh, you know, I also represented managers and sometimes managers would have their own label. Sometimes they wouldn't, but you know, if I represented a manager then I, then by, by extension, I represented their roster. And, uh, and so, uh-huh. I mean, that, that would have included, uh, um, a band called sister seven that became little, little sister that became sister seven. Uh, and, uh, band, mm-hmm. uh, damage plan was a major, major uh, metal band uh, that came out of Pantera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those were all, those were all local, local bands that, that made it, that, that, well, it came right out of Dallas out of Texas, and then made so. it huge. Um, yeah. Let's see. Nice. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to tell you, uh, uh, well, yeah, I'm terrible, drawing I'm terrible at names like this, but I'm going to say, I, I did represent one band uh, that made it entirely probably the most popular band in the world that you never heard of, <laughs> and, and because they were a, a band yeah. originally out of Mexico and California uh, called uh, uh, Los Tigres mm-hmm. del Norte. Okay, I think I've heard of these guys. Okay, I think well they, they let me tell you how huge they are. I mean, they have sold out stadiums. And uh, and they probably mm-hmm. have about mm, seven or eight, nine Grammys, and uh, and uh, so I mean they're monstrously yeah. huge, but it's Spanish language. It's Spanish well, language. They do like rap that. and stuff. They're 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 main. They they're very is what they all call over the Norteño, place. Yeah. which is a, a a brand of Mexican pop music that is focused in the northern parts of Mexico, and uh, and yeah. You know, I I used to be fairly well connected with the Recording Academy uh, back when a fellow by the name of Michael Green was president, and uh, you know he he we had you know we used to spend some time together talking about ways to make the Grammys more relevant, and uh, and 
Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's a tough one. I think I, especially well, I with think so many types he of music. Succeeded and and they and they've since rolled it back. But there is a period of time, you know, and, and I'm gonna th- I'm gonna take partial credit for it because it was an idea that I planted in his head, which was to expand the number of categories. I I, I said, you know, at the time, and this we're talking very early '90s, '90, '90, '91, '92, and I I told him I said yeah. it's ridiculous that you have a category called world music that everything that's not American has to, has to compete in. I mean, everything. <laughs> I mean, we're talking yeah, yeah. reggae has to compete right. in it. Polka music has to compete in it. Uh, you know, Latin has to compete in it. Uh, Japanese had to compete in it. I mean, anything that wasn't American got thrown into this world music category. And I said, that's ridiculous. I mean, there should at least be like a, a reggae grant. You know, <laughs> you know, and uh, and and, and right. to his credit, you know, he did that. He expanded the the number of categories pretty significantly, to the point where even you know the, now there is a, a separate Latin Grammys where where the Latin music is broken down into thirty categories. Yeah, but and, and one of the categories oh, nice. they yeah. created was and- Norteño. and my band, you know, the Los Tigres del Norte was like the number one band in that in that genre and so they ended up like sweeping the grammy in that category seven years in a row <laughs> and uh and 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 since then they've rolled back the categories and uh and made fewer of them and i i don't i don't even know if you i don't so know they out of they out of nogales but uh the most recent grammys um I don't think they announced any of the rock and roll awards on the show i think those were all relegated to the afternoon non-broadcasted part of the program yeah i think it's basically yeah, it's, it's hip-hop pop and, and pop, pop and, and rap yeah that's it because that's that's where the money is yeah well that uh, yeah i mean it, the grammys has always gone off the charts anyways i mean based based upon the charts now there's so many different charts i don't know how they do it but i mean it used to be just Pop was the basic thing, and then the best country, and the yeah, you know. yeah, it's, it comes and goes. But I think I, it's, I it's, do. I'm going to say it's, that it's, the '90s were the highlights of the Grammys, where they, they were doing it right for a little while. But uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it's yeah. they they rolled back into irrelevancy. Yeah. Well, it's hard. To well, be that's the thing is, world, I mean, you know, you know? it used to um, be that. Uh, you know, it was so hard to get a record deal that, you know, nobody would hear you. Now, now you don't need a record deal. You can do it yourself. And, uh, and, and then radio became mm-hmm. the barrier because, you know, you, it was easy to put your music out there, but it was impossible to get on the radio. But then radio has become almost irrelevant for breaking new music now. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's adapted. And, uh, you know, places like uh, YouTube, you know, or where you break new music now. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of weird yeah. because you have to be, you know, the consumer has to be more, uh, you know, proactive as far as seeking out new music. It's not, it's not like you could be passively sitting back and all of a sudden hear that great new song out of nowhere. Right. You just I mean, let it Spotify run like a radio. can do that if you just kind of yeah. go on yeah if you just let it run you can find new things that's kind of fun um that's one way to do it but it's it's not easy to find music sometimes i mean even though it's all there it's it's kind of that baskin robbins effect 
You know, where there's so much. I don't even know what mood I'm right. in half the time. What kind of music do I want to listen to? You know, I end up I end up going to Chopin <laughs> fall half back. the time just because fall. <laughs> I want something. I want something that's yeah. beautiful. Well, Dallas that's is just pretty there. lucky. I don't yeah. know about you, but we we have a, uh, our NPR station was doing so well that it spawned a sister station. So we have two NPR stations in Dallas, and and one one of them. Wow, that's good. That's really good. About two thirds talk and news and one third music. The other one's all music. And and the the new one, and like all no 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 classical it and jazz or the most eclectic mix that you could possibly imagine. You know they'll anything from the fifties to today's brand new release, totally in a mix. And uh, I and I it's yeah. a station I can listen to and discover new music on. Yeah, that's cool. My wife has this app called Radio Paradise, and it's this one guy that puts he basically puts together his own radio station. I imagine yeah. he's more than one guy now, but that's kind of how he started. And he's he's got really good taste, you know. He'll play Nirvana, and the next thing you're hearing is, you know, Chopin. Yeah, I'll just bring Chopin back in. But yeah, he just mm-hmm. he mixes it up in is a way. Is this an internet radio? Good. It doesn't internet feel radio? out of okay out of place. It is called Radio Paradise. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the radio. stations I mean, will, so you will can donate on the internet because there's a, a cut rate uh, on the royalties for doing that if you're just simulcasting, uh, as opposed to you know original programming mm-hmm. on the internet. But uh, but I was going to say I'll give a little plug to my my community radio station here, which is uh, KNON. Uh, K. Yeah, a K-N-O-N, K-N-O-N in, Dallas. in the house. Uh, like I said, we got this twenty-four-seven of individual programming, but we're launching, and we and we do the simulcast too, or we do archives of shows where you can listen to them online. But we're going to expand into uh, original internet broadcasting programming and use it as a minor league to develop shows for the over-the-air broadcast. So. So we're planning on having unlimited capacity for new wannabe DJs to develop their show and and broadcast them on nice. the internet. And if you build up enough of an audience, get promoted to the on the air show. Wow, that's a really good yeah. plan. So, I like that. Yeah, that's, we're we're in the you, process. You guys put this together, huh? Yeah. So, so yeah, so, you know, so we're hoping very much to uh, create basically an unlimited market for DJs who want to, who want to produce their own radio shows. And so Dallas, how many universities do you have there? Cause that's where all your uh, wannabe to DJs extent, are going to come from. You know, the big school is SMU and, uh, and uh, the university of Texas has mm-hmm. a local branch. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, there's a Jesuit school here. Uh, University of Dallas and Fort Worth, which is, you know, Dallas is part of a twin cities, Dallas, Fort Worth, Fort Fort Worth is 30 miles from Dallas. Mm -hmm. And it's got TCU, Texas Christian University. Uh, So it's got, it's got a big school too over there. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, you got young dreamers out there in, in the immediate area. Yeah. You're uh, you're 
taste in music really yeah, it's, spans. It's pretty, yeah. All I, of it. You know, when it, it makes it hard to date people because I have to warn them. I said, but my taste in music exceeds any normal, reasonable human being. So, if if, if you're going to go with me to shows, you know, you'll go to some <laughs> that you'll love, and you're going to go to some, and you're going to wonder what the hell is this guy, you know, taking me to. But but uh, but you know, I. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I I have been either blessed or cursed with the ability to develop new favorite music. Pretty much, you know, most people I think get pretty much locked into whatever music they grew up with. And uh, and you know my uh, yeah you know my favorite band it might be your favorite band the one we have in common is the Dandy Warhols. Yeah, they they are my number one favorite. band. I really love them. And uh, I didn't discover them until I was in my forties. And, uh, so, you know, so, yeah, I, I think I was in my forties, a friend of ours, you know, she was just a super fan. She worked at the high school. She literally played it all day long. She developed a bunch of super fans from the kids in the high school. One of which was Thomas Mudrick. Which, Not this uh, year. I went did you go to the before. Christmas show this year? Yeah. The, the one, the one where we met. Yeah. So the band that opened. Yeah. That, well, this one, um, they were opened yeah, up by I'm a band with called Mother yeah. Mariposa. Yeah, Jason Adams and uh, Thomas Mudrick and uh, well, I, 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 couple, I think I, I think they opened for them when they were drawing a blank Dallas on the names right now. I think so. Oh, they did, and that's that's just a it's a completely different kind of music, you know. And I was talking to Thomas. I did a podcast with him, um, and. Uh, he was saying that he was going with this African guy. And uh, if I look through my notes, I could tell you the name. But basically, this guy has a, uh, a harem in Africa. And all of the, his family is in this band. And they just play music for hours. Yeah. And get well, you know, I'm a, actually state. a big fan of Afro. And, and uh, you know, I, uh, I had a, a classmate uh, of mine in law school who was from Lagos, Nigeria. And, uh, and so we, uh, he, he was actually fairly surprised that I was even familiar with the bands over there. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the old Juju music mm-hmm. and King Sonny Ade and, and, you know, these, these are, these are people that, you know, that I've been listening to since college. And, uh, and so, so yeah, yeah my, my taste runs extremely diverse, but I was going to tell you, since we're both we're both Dandy Warhol fanboys, I tell you how I, how I hooked up how I hooked up with the Dandy Warhols. Yeah, I mean, are you you're you're of course familiar with yeah. the uh, the movie Dig, right? The the, the bio film, right? Okay. Well, yes, uh, I hadn't seen it, but uh, but but I relived a moment from that movie <laughs> uh, because I discovered the Dandy Warhols on a trip to London. <laughs> I. I uh, I did. I was in London. Oh, and, you did. Uh, and uh, you know, Thirteen Tales from Urban Bohemia had just come out, maybe four or five months earlier. And uh, you know, Bohemian Like You was this mm-hmm. huge rage over in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, it was over it the was top. A monster hit over there. They had no idea. And uh, so, you know, I show up in London on my first trip to London, and. Uh, I walk into an indie record store somewhere right off of Piccadilly Circus, and they're and they're playing Bohemian, you know, like you. And I'm listening. And I said, "This is the greatest fucking thing I've ever heard." And so I asked them who it was, and they told me, right. I said, "Yeah, it's an American band. You don't know them?" I said, "No, I've never heard of them." 
And, uh, but that was it. That was it. I got, I got turned on in a London record store. <laughs> yeah. Really? So you just heard it. And, and apparently they were playing at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, uh, well, of course, in all the movie, I learned like that everywhere that you went, you would a, hear it. Some telecom commercial that they put, you know, Boho on, on the soundtrack to this commercial. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I never did see yeah, the Vodafone. commercial, but apparently, you know, that's where it spawned from. Yeah, they became huge in Europe, you know, long before they became huge here, and I, and I discovered them on a trip to Europe. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know what's interesting about them is I, I actually met Zia at the Enchanted Forest when they did the Enchanted Forest thing, and I'd seen the band a couple times. But I didn't recognize Zia, and Zia was playing right. in her little country band uh, called Brushberry. And so I, you know, this this whole concert venue at the Enchanted Forest was like, uh, my friend Doug Hoffman put it together with a bunch of friends, and they had like artists everywhere throughout this little Enchanted Forest. You'd see a cello artist, you'd come around over here to be, you know, a bluegrass artist, you'd come around this corner, you know. It would be something else. And so they were playing there and she was doing three bands at the time. She was doing her Brush Prairie band. She was uh, playing with Thomas Mudrick and his band called the Sexy Water Spiders, doing some stuff with them. Cool. And she was playing with the Dandy Warhols all at the same time. Yeah. So I saw her doing her little country thing and I'm like, hey, Zia. Or I didn't say, hey, Zia. I said, I, I really liked what you did there, you know. And she had like her hair up and a little, in a, you know, looked like a, a bun. What do they call those? those little, oh, okay. Oh, no, okay. it was yeah. it was a rag, a do rag, over the top of her head. Yeah, and she just you know looked all countryfied. And I was talking to her and and just giving her kudos to her, her little band. And uh, she says, "Well, I got to go up and do this thing up here with these guys." And I'm like, "Who's that?" She goes, "The Sexy Water Spiders." I'm like, "Oh yeah, I know them." She goes, "You know them?" And I said, "Yeah." And so, and then it was, it was like, "What's your name?" And she goes, "Zia." I said. Zia, are you like Zia? Zia? She goes, well, it depends on which Zia you're looking for. <laughs> and uh, I said, you're from the Dandy Warhol? She goes, yeah. I goes, oh. Anyway, we end up that night going to our house. Like, uh, So I'm friends with Thomas. And at the end, I'm like, what do you guys want to do? He's like, I don't want to go to bar or anything. Let's go to your house and hang out by the campfire. So it's already, what, 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And uh, I call my wife, who's just put a w bottle of wine down in the hot tub with her best friend. And I said, hey, honey, Zia's on her way over. And she's like, what? What are you kidding me? And I said, no, I'm not kidding you. She's on her way. And Zia actually got to the house before me. My wife met her at the door, you know, in her robe. And she's like, she goes, hi, you don't know me, but I'm, she goes, oh, I know you. And, you know, we just had a great night out at the fire. Yeah, they're great people. Music and, and hanging out. Yeah, they and, really and are, I think like, that's down to earth. I mean, that's it strikes me as very similar to the Austin scene, where you know the people who are even local legends are just pretty much everywhere and very easy accessible and regular regular people easy get to know. So I mean, yeah, Austin, oh, yeah. the Austin scene was very much like that. Yeah, yeah there's I, a I think similarity so between Portland yeah. and Austin. I hear. They're they're both liberal oases and in in otherwise conservative uh, states, but uh, Oregon's better. Oregon's better now. It used to be very much east versus yeah, west. Yeah, it's, it? it's like you know the west Oregon was more much more conservative, or the east is east over. The it still kind of is. Um, 
Wasco County, Wasco County is an odd one um, because there are, it, 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 it's one of those, you know, purple leading red uh, kind of areas, but it's all farmland. So you typically, and it's a small yeah. town like the Dalles. They go to Democrat. Yeah. Well, they, 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 I mean, Oregon's a leading time. progressive state now, but I just think it wasn't always like that. It was, it was more divided right along the uh, the mountain line. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and actually, not even on the mountain line. It south of Eugene too. Yep. It's pretty much, if you get south, it's south of Eugene, and it's and south, fact, south Oregon just, and the northern all around California, Eugene. The, the, uh, Eugene the is conservative just, oddballs of, of of their states. Yeah. Jefferson State, Jefferson State kind of reality. A lot of libertarians and yeah. Uh, oh, what yeah. do they call those? Yeah, free, we, we, free yeah, persons. we had a bunch of those too, especially especially yeah. you know, Texas actually has a history of being an independent country. It was an independent country once. And uh and so we, we have a whole movement of nutballs that uh, yeah. that consider themselves uh you know citizens of the Republic of Texas and don't recognize government <laughs> You know, they say, and they and they call themselves free persons. <laughs> well, that, that, you know, we're we're self sovereigns. <laughs> I could I could do anything right. I want. I don't right. have to have a license. Yeah. I can drive a car. To, you you don't. Yep, I can do anything. Well, you're finding out that people who do isolate are having problems when there are national catastrophes. I guess it's really hit yeah. the Hasidic community yeah. pretty hard. Well, in New, New York, York, New York, New York is its own you know, problem because of the density. I mean, the density that exists in New York doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. I mean, it just, it just, it just doesn't. I mean, you, yeah, yeah, you that's, cannot that's socially a big factor, distance in New York sure. City anywhere in any of the five boroughs, except Staten Island. Staten Island you can. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're beholden to public transportation. Yes, yes. Everywhere it's, it's a go, pedestrian lifestyle everywhere. Too. So, I mean, you, you're out there walking with people. Yeah. So uh, so and Dallas, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they they break down the infection rates by zip code. And uh, and it, it's a little bit weird, but the, the, the concentrations, number one, where I am downtown, there's a concentration because of the density. That's not too too surprising. But the other concentrations sure. yeah. are in the in the poor areas, the poorest areas. <coughs> And, and and I'm not entirely Correct. sure if it's just bad social distancing or if it's really lack of access to health care. I, I think it's probably more. Um, yeah, that could be overcrowded family reality. Yeah, multi-generation. Wherein you've got young, good, yeah, multi-generation, five yeah. people going out into the workforce. Yeah. They have some sort of essential thing. There's 10 people in the house. And, you know, one of those people is that yeah. well, and she's, you know, I, I think you're, I didn't even think about that. And, I think you know, this kid right. has there no idea that he has COVID. Households. Yeah. Yeah. I'm noticing it in our Hispanic communities here. If you look at our um, zone maps here, you'll see the Woodburn, which is highly Hispanic. You'll see that West Port or East Portland, way out East Portland, uh, highly Hispanic area, high, high density. And then out in Will, uh, Hillsboro. So we have like these big pockets and they yeah. all are highly his, you know, Hispanic areas, which they do yeah, live I hadn't, together. I, I, hadn't thought of, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. Generation, generationally. 
I think that, and I think there's also a super strong work ethic. Ethic, and you yeah, don't miss could a day be. Of work. It depends. I mean, you know, you know it, that it, kind of it, thing. It does show that you know the food processing places. They're a problem here, like they are everywhere else, and and it's because they never stopped working, and they're yeah. largely Hispanic. Uh, but you know, at the same time, uh, yeah. Hispanics also dominate the uh, the outdoor workers here, the yard, the yard cutters, the road workers, and those people aren't getting sick because they're outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So outside's good. Um, yeah, but yeah, too many people yep. in one space. Hope we live through challenge. it because I, I want to come back to Portland again. Yeah, I want to see you in 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 person. Um, that would be good. So we just got to keep okay. living. Well, I've yeah, had pneumonia twice, so this thing then. actually I, uh, freaks me out pretty good. I, I uh, other than my age, I don't think I have any particular susceptibilities, but. My uh, my daughter's pregnant, so I'm uh, staying super careful for her benefit, and she, and uh, and you know, so I'm trying not to yeah. not to go out too much. So you you uh, gone my, to you know maybe I'm going to estimate right emotions. now somewhere just short of nine hundred. Yeah, yeah. 900 rock and roll shows and you've seen the biggest uh, yeah and yeah and and like i told you pretty much from the get-go when i was in college i found that i had a real talent for spotting up-and-coming bands before they were big so i still i still take a lot of pride in that and, and because mm-hmm. i think i still have it i think i could still spot a winner yeah. before before they're done and uh, and I'm gonna I'll give I'm gonna give you a tip right now just for your your listeners, you know the the next biggest thing is a, is an actual rock yeah. band, good old fashioned rock and roll band, and they're called the Struts. Have you seen the Struts or heard Struts? The Struts oh, yeah. are the Struts. Struts, the struts, struts are awesome. You know, yeah, if they're not playing fun. stadiums Straight in the next five years. I'm gonna be shocked. Uh, and. Uh, they are that good. They're the second yeah, me coming of me Queen. Too. They're that good. Uh, and and I, I'm going to tell you, I saw Queen before they were famous. Mm. Uh, I did. I in fact, I. Oh, you did. I I, uh, I saw them because the first time I saw them, they were an opening act. So I heard that uh, Freddie was really pretty nope, shy. No, nope, totally, and it totally. Took not him true. a while to build up his <laughs> buoyancy. From the beginning, and no, he I'm was, going to he say was, he was out there from that the beginning. Maybe even a little bit more out there at first, because you know Queen started as a total glam band, and uh, and 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 if you saw the movie Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody, you, you you saw a little of this. I mean, that movie definitely had some artistic license taken, but you know Freddie started out with long hair, doing you know the effeminate thing. Uh, you know, he was definitely the androgynous Bowie type, right? You know, with long hair and makeup, and uh, <laughs> and you know, with a voice that just could, you know, that could break glass. Yeah, yeah. And wow. uh, so the first time I saw them, they the were, most they amazing were still voice ever. And uh, and they were that good that you know they opened up for Mata Hoople. And uh, yeah, now now here's here's. Here's a great story. Not the hoople. Um, All there's the a song dudes. on their Queen's third album uh, called Now I'm Here, which is a great song. And uh, there's a line in it about uh, 
down in the city just hoople and me and uh, and that is a reference to the show that they did oh, with nice. monster hoople as their opening act right and but here's the thing little, i saw them little play shout with out hoople in new york city that that song is about six months later and, and i'm telling you six months after they were an opening act they were back in new york headlining their first show and they opened with that song, Now I'm Here, singing about their show in New York six months earlier. <laughs> yeah, so, and I saw both shows. And, oh, that's uh, cool. and for the second show, which was their first headlining show, I was in front of the front row. I had my elbows on the stage. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, wow. no, because it was. And, and you didn't have to muscle they, in they, back they actually then, probably. Played at the not Lincoln that Center. packed. So the home of the symphony orchestra in New York. And uh, it was a reserve seat show. And they would have rock shows there periodically. And for whatever reason, the people who were sitting in the front row stayed in the front row. And I just walked in front of them, walked up to the stage. And, of course, then everybody followed. But, uh, but uh, it was, I just walked right up. It was easy. Yeah, I, I don't like watching rock shows in it, places It depends with on the band. Seats. It depends on the I mean, I, like know, I mean, if it's an easy, to. you know, if it's an acoustic show or something. I, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and plus, yeah, I can watch live. I, I like yeah, sitting you know. down periodically. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, the honest to God truth, it's easier on my dates. If I take a date to a, a rock show where it's standing the whole show, it, it, it's a little rough on the dates because <laughs> because they just don't have the same uh, enthusiasm I do for uh, for standing up and fighting the crowds. and Right. So McMinimans, they yeah. kind of know the age group of their crowds when they do their shows at the Edgefield. And so some shows, there's no seating yeah. at all. And some shows, it's so, almost so, all so, seating, yeah. you know. That's good. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so I, I, I mix so it up. They're pretty you know. smart on that. But, but yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, still, I'm still the geezer that's, that's pushing his way up to the front and, uh, and rocking out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So after uh, that's that's what's interesting to me. Like you are truly yeah. experienced, and you land on yeah. I, I, I mean, I really loved them, and that's, uh, that's you pretty know, cool. It was, of course, I mean, I think that was their third album, so I only had two to to you know learn as far as a back catalog, uh, and, and you know, so I've been able to kind of grow with them, and uh, uh-huh. and the nice thing about it, you know, is they've they've always they've always you know in the U.S. I've always played you know fairly small to to medium sized places. You know, they never they never did take off to the arena level, and uh, and mm-hmm. and that made it. You know, after I discovered them in London, no. uh, of course I was looking for them to do a show here, and and the first place they played, you know, was a place that held like six seven hundred people, and uh, and so I saw the show, and it was it was fabulous. It was everything I'd hoped for, and uh, and it was the sort of place where. You know the the bus uh, and the trailer was just parked out front, and they were, you know, basically self loading in and out still. And so, you know, so I was it was very easy to oh yeah you know, say hi and uh, and chat chat them up after the show, and and uh, so I just made a habit of doing that. And uh, you know, when a band comes every year or two, and you're 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 part of the same crowd chatting them up after the show, eventually, eventually. They, they they eventually sort of vaguely remember you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, they you know, see a lot of people. It just kind of grew from there. 
So, so, uh, so yeah, only in the last two or three years that they, did they get it in their mind to start charging for meet and greets and stuff. And, uh, uh, so that 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 was that was disappointing because I, that was always a freebie yeah. I'd always gotten. <laughs> but that's the necessity of the business these days. Yeah, yeah, I. Um... Yeah, that's what's going on. I mean, they're not making. Well, you know, the, you know, the houses you know, are taking I, I more. I do represent promoters. I mean, you know, you know, in my 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 law practice. Uh, has transitioned from representing you know a hundred independent labels to representing promoters. Because that's where the business is. And so, you know, I've kind of right. grown with that, too. And, you know, be, having been a promoter back in the 70s, I saw how that, you know, how that business has changed. Uh, and But one of the main changes, really, is that more of the ticket price goes to the band than before. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, I mean, that's why it's, it's really become their oh, main good. income. Oh, good, good. Not only because that's the biggest part of the business left, but because a much higher percentage of the gate goes to the band. Yeah, good. That's the yeah. only way they can make it. And that's that's the thing that's really sucking right now for so many bands. You know, they're not they're not making it on digital downloads. Back in the day, yeah, well, I mean, you know, you've got a good chunk like of said, a record. The record, the, records, the, the, the record deals haven't changed that much. But when they went from you know from sales to streaming, uh, you know the conversion ratios were so so negative that that the, the money just necessarily went down. But but the royalty rates based on sales equivalents really haven't changed that much over the last thirty forty years. It... Oh yeah yeah so yeah. So if you yeah, sell yeah, a million yeah, albums, I mean, you can make some pretty good money. Sell, or a million sell millions of records still make buku bucks. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but there just aren't that many of them anymore. Right. In fact, I mean, in fact, I, I used to keep track of how many, uh, platinum albums yeah. there were each year. And there have been years where there were only two or three. I mean, total in the whole industry. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's got really, to, well, and plus, like I said, the conversion. There's just so much bad. to choose from. So, I mean, you, you know, millions and millions of streams don't convert into millions of sales. They convert into like tens of thousands of sales. And, and, and you know, there was, you know, there was a time right back in the seventies and eighties where you had to sell a million copies to get to the top of the charts. But now uh, you can hit number one on the yeah. charts with you know fifty thousand sales. It's not very many. In fact, you know my indie labels wow, you know used to be many. able to reach that number with their biggest sellers. Um, and you know, and like I said, they, they, it's a mixed blessing because now indie artists can hit the top of the charts, and and we have we've had some examples of that. Uh, you know, Chance the Rapper. You know, was totally self-made, and hit and hit the top of the charts with a self-produced, self-released record. Yeah. And uh, and Billie Eilish, uh, her hers was self-produced and self-released to start, and she got she got bought out afterwards. But uh, but you know, hers initially yeah. was self-released, and yeah, it did. And, and, well, that and, just kind and, of blew and, up, and, and that's and that's a great thing. Yeah, that, I was like, what what is that, what happened there? You know, that a reason to do it yourself is that it is still possible to break through if you've got the goods. 
Yeah, it's got to be yeah, different. Yeah, they've got it's a gotta really unique style, uh, you know. And and and, and the hard two. and the hard part is being different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That really is yeah. tough. I mean, you know, there's only so many keys on the keyboard, and and everybody's. I mean, think about the. Uh, you know about that case Dandies with and the Rolling Dandies Stones? No, the, I don't know. Rolling I don't Stones. think. Remember that. Yeah, the Bohemian like you. Apparently, uh, Rolling Stones lawyers went after them because the uh, intro. Uh, you know, I it was uh, well. I, I'm like surprised I haven't heard about it. But, no. it but I, I mean, I, I can tell you a, a a Rolling Stones story, a similar story that that really was an injustice that ended up with a happy ending, sort of. Um, you know, the uh, the Stones were at one time managed by Alan Klein, who was fairly infamous. He, he was Dylan's manager. He was the Beatles manager. Probably the leading cause of the Beatles' breakup, to, contrary to all the reported. Uh-huh. But, so, but Alan Klein was notorious for both striking the hardest deals on behalf of his bands, but also ripping them off. <laughs> so he, 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 he was like a mixed blessing. He would generate tons of money oh, for a yeah. band, but yeah. ended up stealing a part of it. But anyway, he was the Stones manager, and he went after. Mm-hmm. There's a song, and it was a one-hit wonder song called uh, uh, "Oh No No No." I can't believe I'm going to draw a blank right this. But it's, it's a one-hit one. Yeah. Man, it happens. I can't believe I'm going to draw a blank on it. But but anyway, I'll, I can tell the story without remembering the song. And then maybe I'll I'll do a comment on your page or whether when I remember the song as soon as I look it up. But uh, but uh, they uh, okay they had uh, actually reached out to the Stones to <coughs> license a sample, and uh, and and licensed five notes out of a Stones song for this song that became their like one hit wonder, and uh, the recording mm-hmm. ended up with six notes instead of five. So Klein sues them for breach oh. of contract, copyright infringement, and 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 ends up taking a hundred percent of the publishing. They they t- ended up taking ownership, complete ownership of the song that became a one-hit wonder, and uh, and the Stones, the Stones, yeah, the Stones owned this song that became this band's like what one and only a hit, bad man, and owned it for. 30 years and uh, only last year and of course Klein's been long gone now but last year out of the sort of the goodness of their heart but probably also because they've bled the song dry by now but uh, but, but uh, Jagger and Richards uh, uh, gifted the song back to the original author uh, uh, a year, just a year ago so I mean, they, I mean they did get 30 years of the oh, song's cool. you know, biggest earning years Uh no, they did no. They did no refunds, but they did hand the song. Yeah, they didn't do any, you know. So, so yeah, it bothers me. That I don't remember the song wow. it, because it, it's very, very well known. It, oh, Alan Klein, the manager. What was that guy's yeah. name again? Yeah, he was a big. big he was a, he was a big heavy guy. Yeah, I think I saw pictures of him. And uh, I've seen yeah, a lot he, of. He lived, he lived near me. He was up in Woodstock with the. Uh, you know, when Dylan was up there, 
And he went from being Dylan's manager to being the Beatles manager to managing all the biggest bands in the world because he was notoriously tough. But 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 he also was a big ripoff artist. So almost everybody that ever hired yeah. him regretted it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's too bad. No, I, I don't the guy remember who, that uh, particular, but I tend to doubt it. I remember they, they got screwed hard. Yeah, so Oasis thought yeah. that too. Yeah, they were going to be bigger than the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, they all say that. They all say that. And I imagine with population, that well, you know, you'd be surprised numbers, how long those Beatles that records last. Anybody's going to beat them in longevity. Uh, the the still lasting. Well, I, I noticed that uh, they're still lasting. I still see little kids. I can't remember, I think it was Taylor yeah, Swift. I see kids go into them and then they just go the in. Beatles Stay. record for the most number one releases in a row. Well, yeah, so, but I mean, you know, it, it's taken 50 years to do it. Right. Right. Actually, I think I saw her and Paul McCartney. <laughs> Tied your record, man. Talking shit to Paul about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I oh, think she said, I had know, 10 you in know, one so, year. You know Honey, something? I, I think the most in one year. He just walks off stage and she's like, oh. I think they, I remember, you know, I lived living in New York. You know, the national top 40 was pretty much determined in New York. It was the uh, ABC, Dick Clark and all that was, uh, you know, basically were the, were the chiefs of all that chart stuff. And, and I, sure. I seem to recall the yeah. Beatles had eight out of the top 10 in 1964 or something like that. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, probably. Yep. And I still they, they regret. Were, they were an amazing man. They still blow my mind. And well, I was I wasn't I wasn't old enough to drive myself and I couldn't talk my parents oh. into it. Yeah. Reading reading the book about it. That was uh, the Cow Palace one was a weird one for them. I, I've I've read it in two accounts. The book in the um, uh, I read it electrical in account. Um, well, not Keezy's yeah. I, I remember uh, reading that part about looking at the waves in the crowd the every time the Beatles yeah. moved, and the, and they were on acid. And... <laughs> Just all the flesh of well, they, I think I remember writing people about energy waves faces. traveling over the crowd's yeah. heads and stuff. That was. <laughs> oh, one of, that, one of that, my favorite that books. book is so thick, but it reads. I will. I will tell you so one, one little aside from the Tom from Wolf the, is from just an amazing writer. Stadium really is. Was that I? I ended up going to a Mets game like the week after at, at Shea Stadium, and they still had leftover Beetle programs for sale, and I mm-hmm. bought one for ten cents. I, I so I have a program from the Beatles Shea Stadium concert that I bought for ten cents. Oh, cool. <laughs> Nice. Well, so uh, I'm, I'm staring at my vinyl album right keep now. All that stuff? Um, so I, I and I did keep all my original vinyl, though my collection's probably not as big as a lot of my friends. I have like six, six, seven hundred vinyl albums, but they're all originals going back to the early '60s, and uh, you know they're all still in decent shape. My, uh, I have a, I have a memorabilia bin. Uh, it's, it's, it, it started out as my ticket stub box. Mm-hmm. I, I have collected all my ticket stubs going back all the way. 
Oh. Yeah, some shows don't have them. So I we really can count up. Now some but, shows don't uh, have them, but but the print yourself tickets. Uh, what I what I what I end up doing is uh, I'll I'll print my print ticket like on a, a little piece of uh, photograph paper, so like a snapshot. So I'll, I'll end up with a little glossy reproduction of the print it yourself ticket, and I'll throw that mm-hmm. in the bin. So it's not it's not as good, but it's something. So 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 anyway, okay. my ticket. My ticket box, ticket stub box, was turned into a twenty-four yeah. gallon bin, and uh, and I've ended up throwing my other memorabilia my in there, goodness. which is you know guitar picks and set lists and, and miscellaneous things. But but uh, yeah, we 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 could talk about fanboy stuff because I got some great fanboy stories going 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 to uh, going to that many shows. Of course. And I'm going to tell you, out of <laughs> out of those, we'll call it 850 shows. A uh, hundred of them were shows that I produced myself. So yeah, so so I got off to a really good start. You know, I I probably nice. only been to you know seven or eight concerts during my high school years, maybe maybe ten. But then you know when I got to college and I was put in charge of the shows, you know, all of a sudden you know I was I was doing 30 plus a year. And uh, and was at every one of them because I was working them. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I, I tell you one one great story that that, uh, that stands out for me was was just blind luck. Uh, I was uh, down in Houston at a legal seminar, and uh, you know legal seminars tend to be scheduled for two days, Thursdays and Fridays. And uh, so there's there's a night in between where you got nothing to do. And, and so I'm in Houston, Texas, with nothing to do. And I pull out the paper and see, mm-hmm. hey, well, you know, I always look to see if there's a show going on because, you know, that's what I would like to do. And uh, there was this great blues show going to happen. It, it starred B.B. Uh, King, uh, Buddy Guy, Susan Tedeschi, and, uh, and Dr. John, all four of them. And that's a great show. And they were playing this, this small oh, wow. theater that's in the round. So I, I hopped in the car and drove down to the theater and didn't have a ticket or anything. And, uh, you know, walked up to the, t- to the ticket window and asked for the best single they had. And, you know, showing up at the last minute and just wanting a single ticket sometimes results in some pretty amazing miracles. I've had it happen more than once that I end up in the front row. Well, not only did I end up in the front row, but I ended up in row one, seat one, where all the artists were coming on and off the stage because it was a theater in the round. So, so I'm in you know, the seat right at the base mm-hmm. of the stairs to the stage. And, of course, every artist that's coming on and as they come off, I'm high-fiving them on the way on and I'm high-fiving them on the way off and I'm having a great time. And, and uh, so, yes, it's... Hey Charles, I think my battery is about to die. Charles, shit. <laughs>